When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. This is Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and I'm a little sad today, to be honest. Sad because the Sermon on the Mount is behind us. These past two weeks, the chance just to sit at the Savior's feet and learn directly from Him has been a great blessing. To understand what He was hoping to accomplish through His ministry based on the message that He gave there on that mount. To help us ascend the hill of the Lord right alongside Him until we can become perfect even as he and his father in heaven is perfect. I know that goal is a long way off, but with the Savior, uh, not only do we have the time to get there, but we also have the grace. And in some ways, because of that grace, because of the Savior's company that he offers us along the journey, the longer the better. It's just more time that we get to spend with the Savior. Now, Many of us, after an incredible spiritual experience, after we feel like we've really learned from the Lord, it's hard to come down from the mountaintop. You think about Nephi, after he's had these visions just unfold before him, and he comes down from that mountaintop experience, and the first people he meets down below is Laman and Lemuel. That's rough. To think about Moses after his epiphany and coming back down to earth, so to speak, and the first one that he meets is the adversary himself, trying to, to tear down what the Lord had just built up in him. Coming down from mountaintops can be difficult. Returning home from a mission, I see it among, among my students all the time, that, that, that transition back to quote-unquote real life can be really difficult. And, and the view from the mountain was so magnificent that it's hard to, to descend to the plain and figure out how do I live at lower altitudes when my mind has already been caught up and my spirit has soared. That's going to be our challenge now that the Sermon on the Mount is behind us. And yet, number one, Jesus will continue to repeat things that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount later. We'll see some hints and, and, and echoes of that. But also, in some ways, this is where the rubber now hits the road. Jesus taught, he gave us his words, but now what we're going to shift our attention to are Jesus's deeds. And in some ways, if our mission, for example, was a, a Sermon on the Mount kind of experience where we truly learned from the Lord, well, we didn't, we didn't max out there. That was not the high point of life. We were simply establishing our trajectory. Now it's time to keep building momentum and continue forward. And that's what we'll see, especially in these next two weeks, because if we had Christ's ministry of the Word in the Sermon on the Mount, now we have ministry of deed in what's about to follow. And especially when we follow Matthew's uh, chronology, it's a ministry of miracles. If you remember Mos uh, excuse me, M uh, Moroni chapter 7, Mormon talks about God continuing his work and that the fact that he is still a God of miracles means that, God, that miracles have not ceased. And if they have, it's because faith has ceased, since it's faith that brings forth miracles. We will see so many <laughs> magnificent miracles Today's, in today's lesson as well as in next week's. 
in some ways I wish we could squeeze them all into one week and just (laughs) bask in, in this godly glow. But I am glad that we'll get to extend a bit into next week's lesson to see two of my favorite miracles in the raising of the daughter of Jairus and the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. Next week will be a powerful lesson, especially based on those two stories. But the stories that we're getting today, we will be jumping around between Matthew and Mark and Luke. When a story is this uh, miraculous, everybody wants to talk about it. You can't help it. Uh, And so our our study is going to be a bit more challenging than usual because we're going to be flipping back and forth. I'll try to to pick one main uh, version of each miracle. But then I'll be drawing in as much additional insight as I can from the other from the other versions. One other thing that makes this difficult, as far as our Come Follow Me curriculum is concerned, is that it's based on chapters rather than scripture blocks within those chapters. And so what we've been assigned for this week is Matthew 8, Mark 2, 3, and 4, and Luke chapter 7. There's a lot of material there. But there are places where what you'll find a story in in Mark 4, for example, and it's found later on in Matthew than what we're studying today. And so I'm going to be, it's going to look like I'm skipping things from some of those chapters. And technically I am, but not to completely leave them. I'm just saving them for when we'll catch up to them in a later chapter in a different gospel. Uh, that I, I've been trying to pay attention to how Come Follow Me is organizing things topically as well as what ch- which chapter in the Gospels. And so, for example, some of what we'll see in the chapters assigned for this week have to do with John the Baptist. But there is a later chapter in Matthew that really focuses on John the Baptist. And so we'll, bring those sto- we'll save those stories for later. Uh, we see similar things about miracles that Jesus performs on the Sabbath uh, in this week's material. And yet... Later, we'll have a lesson that really focuses on the Sabbath. And so we're going to, again, save those stories for that lesson as well. I'm going to do my very best, uh, as, as hard as it is to, to wrap my head around it all, uh, I'm going to do my best to make sure we don't leave anything untaught. Uh, we're, we're leaving no stone unturned, right? I've never met a verse I haven't liked. Uh, and so I'm going to try to do my best to bring those up, but in a place where they're most, where we can really do them justice. Okay, so if we miss something, as you're studying these chapters, we're not missing them for good. Uh, We're going to bring them up when uh, when, when perhaps more appropriate. Now, as far as this week's material, the the deeds after the words that we're going to be studying, there's going to be eight main miracles that we'll focus on this week. And to just give you the preview of coming attractions, we will see the healing of the leper, the healing of the centurion's servant, and the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Those are all three stories about healing the lowest of society in some ways. People that are so easily forgotten, but not for Jesus. After those three healing miracles, we'll then see the calming of the stormy sea as the disciples are trying to cross the Sea of Galilee by boat. We'll then see a different kind of calm when Jesus casts this legion of devils out of this possessed man. After that, we will see the healing of the man with the palsy as they lower him down through the roof. Beautifully famous story. And then we'll see the raising of the son of the widow of Nain. And that's a miracle that only Luke talks about. At the end of today's lesson, when we spend our time in Luke 7, we'll see some things that are purely Lucan. Uh, And to see this, again, someone that is so often neglected or forgotten, such as a widow, uh, we'll, we'll see her, her son raised by the end of today's lesson. And then the final one we'll see is forgiving a woman who comes in to see Jesus and washes his feet with her hair, with her tears, excuse me, and wipes them with her hair. A beautiful, beautiful, touching scene that I hope the Spirit will help us do justice to by the end of this week's lesson. We have, in some ways, I love 
I love pondering these miracles. It's more than just the shock and awe of, wow, look what Jesus did. In some ways, a better question is, or a better invitation is, look who Jesus is. And beyond the action, look at the attribute that's motivating it. Instead of simply seeing the work of his hands, look for the work of his heart and to see a compassionate Christ and a Lord of mercy and of love. That is what is motivating him to do these things. He is not casting himself off the temple to prove that he's the son of God. He's not changing stones to bread to, to make sure that everyone knows who he is. No. He is rewarding faith with miracles, as he always does. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, we'll start with his account. Because Matthew, it's simpler in Matthew. You, you miss some beautiful details in Mark and Luke. But if you follow the chronology of Matthew, it's simple because he seems to collect miracles. Yeah, that's one of the things that, that Matthew liked to do. He was meticulous, and so often he would find a theme. And then even if he had to do some injustice to the chronology, he would bring them in to make a more of a topical approach. And so we'll see a lot of miracles of the kingdom in Matthew 13 in a few weeks, for example. And what you see if you collect to, or if you combine Matthew 8 and 9, it's this compilation of miracle accounts. And though in Luke and, and Mark, they're spread at different parts of Christ's ministry, as far as Matthew was con concerned, it was, no, let's bring all these together and just let you savor one after the other after the next and just see who Jesus is and what he can accomplish in the life of someone of faith. So Matthew chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, we meet our first, our first hero here. And it's one that in his society, no one would have considered a, a, a hero. I look up to this character, but it is one that society in his day looked down upon and from a distance. If you go to chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, when he, Jesus, was come down from the mountain, and remember what just happened by the end of Matthew 7? The Sermon on the Mount. And so that's the mountain he's descending from. Keep this context in mind that this is right on the heels of this incredible discourse where the multitudes of disciples have come to learn from the Lord. And remember, every time Jesus went anywhere, there seemed to be multitudes uh, tagging along, wanting to be as close to him as possible. And if he just taught the greatest sermon of all time, there's probably going to be a lot of students lingering after class wanting to talk a little more. Keep that in mind. So Jesus comes down from the mountain and great multitudes followed him as expected. And behold, there came a leper and worshiped him saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Now this is not just any old leper. In the Luke version, it describes him more fully. It calls him a man full of leprosy, who seeing Jesus fell on his face and besought him full of leprosy. Now picture this poor, suffering leper, if you can. In fact, if you dare, because leprosy is a loathsome disease. It would, it would scare people. No wonder that lepers themselves had to scare people off in advance if people didn't know what was coming their way. That, that, they, would, that they would cry out, unclean, unclean, so that everyone would know to scatter. Because leprosy I mean, it, it's, it covers a broad spectrum. It's more of an umbrella term for any kind of skin disease. But if this man is full of leprosy, then picture this, this disease at its worst manifestation and at its latest possible extent. 
This is someone who is dying right before your eyes. Dead man walking, skin flaking off, flesh falling from the bone. No wonder people were so afraid of it. It becomes an incredible metaphor for spiritual death because you are cut off from the the household of the faith. You're cut off from the community of saints. You certainly seem cut off from the mercy or goodness of God. Remember, this is a culture that doesn't understand physical disease very well, but also they associate everything with divine blessing or punishment. Now, there is truth to to the, the promise that if you keep the commandments, you'll prosper in the land. But don't take that naively. Or Job will raise his hand and say, yeah, that wasn't exactly my experience. But because his culture, as, as was the culture in the time of this poor leper, said that if you're suffering, it must be because there's sin. We're seeing the, the, the smoke. There must be fire. What did you do? So picture this poor leper being judged as well as condemned, being ostracized. Yeah, just please stay away because we cannot afford to catch whatever you have. Now, no wonder this man is coming and falling on his face before Jesus. Is this humility or is this, I have no strength left, I'm on the verge of death? That he would beseech him and not just ask, but worship. He came and worshiped the Lord. Such an important detail to remember. Though nothing has happened to him yet, It's okay, faith precedes the miracle, and he's showing that faith in his form of worship. He's not just wishing, he's worshiping. In the Mark version of this, it says that he came beseeching him, kneeling down to him. Again, this worshipful stance. But one interesting detail I think we sometimes miss is when we look at most paintings, most depictions of this scene, it seems like it's off on some back alleyway. Some off off the grid almost. And there is this poor solitary leper. No one around him. As Jesus happens to walk by with a few token apostles. Well, he's usually on his knees. And that's accurate. But if Jesus just came down from the mount where he taught this life-changing sermon. If great multitudes are following him. Then how would we depict the scene more accurately? in a crowded street somewhere in Jerusalem. Now, of course, the leper would have preferred the artist's depiction where it's just him on a back alley somewhere. Because if there's one thing that a leper would fear, it would be a multitude. They're scared of me. If they aren't, I have to scare them away. Unclean, unclean, that's me. You're looking at uncleanness personified. This person has been cut off socially, spiritually, Physically, he's suffering in every imaginable way. And I can't let the multitude see me. I can't come when all of them are around Jesus. By the way, next week when we meet the woman with the issue of blood, she is the female equivalent of this male sufferer. Uh, Her issue of blood makes her ritually impure and unclean. That blood loss would be the the female equivalent of the leprosy that this man is suffering from. And what would she want to avoid at all costs also? A crowd. A multitude. But in both their cases, and we'll see her example next week in, in living color. But to see what the leper is dealing with here, I can't possibly go. I can't I can't go see Jesus. 
I'll have to wait sometime, Nicodemus-like, and go at night, perhaps. But who's to say that he'll be there? I don't know. This might be my one chance. Among so many things that impress me about this leper, the fact that he would brave a multitude to go see Jesus is one of the things that amazes me most. I think sometimes we worry so much about what other people will think of us if they know that we, heaven forbid, are unclean, unclean. I would never say that. I want people to look at me, and not only in the street, but especially in the synagogue, as I give alms and sound a trumpet before me, as I pray on the street corner to be seen of man, as I fast and make sure I disfigure my face so people know just how holy I am. Is that why we don't go see the bishop because we're afraid of what he'll think of us? I certainly wouldn't want to set up an appointment through the executive secretary because then he's going to wonder, well, why do you need to see the bishop? Why are we so afraid of a multitude when the person that we need most is standing in the midst? We have to have this leper's courage. And no matter what people might think, if that's where Jesus is, that I'm going no matter, no matter what happens with people shying away or crying out in fright, horrified, disgusted by what I am. No, if that's where Jesus is, I'm coming. And he comes and he falls and he kneels and he beseeches and he worships and he says, what? He says, Lord, he recognizes who this is, my master, Lord of heaven and earth, the, one that, the only person that has potential to actually help me here. But Lord, if, oh, if, pay attention to the ifs you see in the New Testament. We saw a handful of them from Lucifer at the Mount of Temptation. If you're really the Son of God, change the stones to bread. If you're the Son of God, leap off the temple, God will save you. We'll see more of those types of ifs at the, the back end of Christ's ministry, at the cross, at the crucifixion. If you're the Son of God, come down, save yourself. We'll see an interesting if from a, in another miracle story we'll get later on, where this father brings a suffering son to Jesus and asks, if thou canst do anything, have mercy on my son. I don't know if you can, but if you can, will you? Compare that if to this leper's if, because it's the exact opposite. It's not if you can do this, will you? It's if you will do this, I know you can. That, this is an if of faith amidst so many ifs of, of doubt or temptation. Do you understand the faith of this great leper? In fact, I hesitate to even call him that as if I'm trying to define him by, what, by where he's lacking instead of defining him by, by what he has in great abundance. This is a man of faith, a man of submission, that happens to be a man who's suffering from a particular sickness. But what faith, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. I know that. There's, a, there's testimony here in this humble petition. I know you can do this. The only question I have is if it's thy will. Is that how we approach the throne of grace? Is that how we come to God Seeking miracles, worshiping him, beseeching him, falling on our knees. But are we at the, the father of this suffering son or are we the leper here? And which are we questioning? God, I don't know if you can do this. 
I hope you can. No, Lord, I know you can. I just don't know if it's thy will. And as Jesus himself will exemplify later, to have the submission to say, not my will, but thine be done. That's the thou canst make me clean, if thou wilt. Elder Bednar has beautifully taught that it's one thing to have the faith to be healed. It's another thing to have the faith not to be healed. And to have faith in Christ no matter what. To trust him. On the one hand, we want to trust his omnipotence. We know you can do this. But do we trust his omniscience also? That I know that you have the wisdom to decide if this healing is what's best for me or not. And so I'll leave it in thy perfect knowledge. And not just in thy perfect power. You see, I think we ought to do a gut check every time we lay our hands upon someone's head to give them a priesthood blessing. Or every time we kneel next to someone and offer a prayer of faith. Oh, please, sisters, do not think that you don't have the power of the priesthood to perform miracles simply because you're not anointing with oil and laying hands on heads. The prayer of faith has the power to heal, just like priesthood blessings do. And to understand any one of us then, as we approach someone suffering or struggling, and we're wondering, can I do this? Now that's a good question to ask, but it needs to be asked out of faith and not out of doubt. And it needs to be questioning God's will, not his power. Let me put it this way. When we are tremblingly laying hands on head or fearfully kneeling down next to someone we love, as we ask the question, can I do this? Can God do this? I hope by can, we are not asking about power. We are only asking about permission. When we ask, can I do this? I hope that we are not asking about, or, I hope we're not asking, are we able to do this? I hope we're asking, are we allowed? To seek God's will in all things, knowing that his will not only can be done, but will be done if we have the faith to call down the powers of heaven and the faith to leave the decision in his hand. This leper is doing all of that. And as a result, what does Jesus do? Verse 3, Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. He didn't have to wait. It happened in the very moment that Jesus said it. If thou wilt. And what was Jesus' response? I will. My power has always been present. My will is, goes in this direction too. But more than just heal him, one of the things that amazes me about verse 3 is the, the way Jesus did it. We will see later today, Jesus healing people from a distance. Uh, if, and if there was anyone that you'd think you'd want to heal from a distance, it's a person whose contact would be contaminating, but not to Jesus. I honestly wonder if the human touch was as healing as the divine declaration, I will be thou clean. To touch the untouchable, there's something healing about human touch. There's something powerful about having a loved one hold you, to put their arms around you, 
to hold your hand when you're going through something difficult. And imagine a leper who has been cut off from other people, devoid of human touch for however long he's been suffering. And so for Jesus to put forth his hand when people by nature would always be withdrawing in, in, in total fear, to touch the untouchable, knowing only one of us is contagious, and it isn't you, my friend. You will not make me unclean because of your uncleanness. I will make you clean from my cleanliness. Again, we'll see that next week with the woman with the issue of blood, as virtue will flow into her. And here virtue is flowing from Jesus unto this man, and to have a human touch make the connection. Incredibly powerful. In fact, I can't help but think of the beautiful verse in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that describes Jesus as a high priest. And it's the high priest that is going to make atonement Right? The high priest that is going to help us find forgiveness for our sins. This is Hebrews. So picture a Hebrew audience who knows their Old Testament inside and out. And notice how this high priest is described. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In other words, we don't have an untouchable high priest. We don't have someone that that shies away and is disgusted by our filthiness. A good bishop has learned to have a good poker face. And that when somebody comes in to unload their heavy burdens, a bishop can remain unfazed by them and maintain that spirit of openness and acceptance and peace and love. It's okay. You're not scaring me by the stories you're telling me about past transgressions, or current struggles. And to put <laughs> our hand on somebody's shoulder and reassure them that it's going to be okay. We, our high priest is not disgusted by us. He does not withdraw. He comes in. He condescends. He's the word made flesh. And even if that flesh is falling off the bones in the case of this leper, full of leprosy, I will touch you because you've already touched me. And my bowels are filled with compassion is what Jesus will say elsewhere. How can I help but come running? Because I know what it feels like to be suffering even as you. So he touches him. And not just the outer action, but the inward attribute that is motivating him. This is a detail that only Mark recalls. Mark 1.41 adds this beautiful detail. And Jesus, moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him. In Matthew, we see what Jesus does. But in Mark, we see how Jesus feels inside. And what is motivating him? It's his compassion. Calm, with, passion, feeling, suffering. Compassion is such a magnificent word. It's similar to condescension, to come down with. Well, now it's to suffer with. And if you can have that level of empathy, path, again, path and passion, same root word there. And it has to do with feeling, emotion, and suffering. And so if I have sympathy, I'm suffering with. Uh, sim is with, right? Or like. 
empathy. It's like I'm suffering in you. Compassion, suffering with you. Jesus has mastered all of those vocabulary words. They define him to the core. Well, keep going and, and you'll see what Jesus does next. And this one's really fascinating. Because we saw earlier those great verbs from, I think, the Matthew account that Jesus is always teaching, preaching, healing. Well, here we see him healing. But there's some teaching and preaching that's going to go along here too. Because in the next verse, verse 4, Jesus says to this man that's now healed, and probably can't think of anything else, but who am I going to go see first? What family members, what friends have I been cut off from for so long? And I just want to throw my arms around them, knowing they can finally throw their arms around me. Well, Jesus has a different person for, them to go, for him to go see first. Jesus says to him, See thou tell no man. Remember, we call that the messianic secret. I'm not, trying to, I, I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm not doing this on the street corner. So don't tell anyone, but go thy way and tell one person. Do it this way. Show thyself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Ooh, unto them? Who? Who, who are you telling? I want, you to, I want the priests to know. I want the leaders of apostate religion to know that God is still a God of miracles. And those that are consigning him to some bygone age, this Methodist minister that Joseph Smith spoke to, that believed in miracles past, but not miracles present, visions in the distant biblical history, not in the present day. To think of people, oh, Moses could do something like that. Abraham, perhaps. Elijah, yes. Elisha. But now, in the full glory of the first century, Oh, it's still a, he's still a God of miracles. So make sure that religious leaders know that the God that they supposedly represent is alive and well. In Christ's case, he's actually come down among us. So go show the priest. But notice something else that he's, that's happening here. Offer the gift that Moses commanded. Now, if you're Matthew writing this and you're writing to a Jewish audience, they know exactly what he means by that. And their minds immediately race to Leviticus chapter 14. Us, yeah, not so much. So let's, let's turn there. Let's at least stop, pause, turn aside to see this burning bush and ask ourselves, what's the gift that Moses commanded? We talked about this last year in our lesson on Leviticus. And I can't blame you if you didn't listen to that one, because since most people are scared off by the whole book of Leviticus. They pronounce it, leave it, you cuss, because you don't, you don't want to touch that thing. Speaking of untouchable, because it's the, the church handbook of instructions for the ancient priests. And when you offer a sacrifice, this is what you do with the skin, and this is what you do with the, the call of the liver, and make sure you do this with the kidneys and the dung. And, it, it, and it's so you know, technical, that's off-putting to some, but it's also so symbolic. That, that just leaves most of us confused. At the beginning of last week's lesson, I talked about some of the t changes in the temple to make, or the temple endowment, the presentation of the endowment, I've got to be clear here, uh, to make the symbolism a little bit more comprehensible. Well, most people don't take the time to unwrap or spread, put, peel away the layers of the symbolism of the sacrifices in the Law of Moses. But it's worth doing for this one. I'll try to do it more briefly than I did in the Leviticus lesson. If you want to go back and re-listen to that, you're more than welcome. But if someone gets better uh, from a skin wound uh, or a skin disease, there is a ritual that a cleansed leper can go through to prove their ceremonial purity. And what it consisted of is you go, to go, you go see the priest. 
and the priest is the one to examine you to make sure that, I mean, I'm the priest, I can't be touched by the, the feelings of your infirmity. I'm going to just keep my distance, but I'm going to be the one that's checking things out and seeing, are you really better or not? Maybe it was, this was a minor skin condition. You had eczema or psoriasis, and, and you got better. Well, before you come back into the community, there's a ritual that we need to perform together. And it consists of taking a, uh, two birds, a clay pot, some scarlet material, some hyssop plant, some cedar wood, uh, and then you go out to some place where there's some running water, a little stream, a little river somewhere. And then what you do is you take one of those birds, doesn't matter which one you choose, take one of the birds, put it into the clay pot, hold it out over the river, and then rip its head off. Whew, yes, this is animal sacrifice, okay? Now that there's blood, bird blood, at the bottom of this clay pot, take the other bird, the living one, the one that lucked out that you didn't pick that one for the sacrifice. Take it and wrap that bird up in the scarlet material and the hyssop plant and the cedar wood. Just kind of wrap it all together and then dip it in the bird blood that's lying at the bottom of this clay pot. Okay, so far so good. Then you take the living bird and unwrap it and then let it fly. Just send it, send, let, it free, let it go free. As it flies away, dripping blood off of its wings, you never see that again. But then what do you do with the rest of the blood that's in the bottom of the clay pot? You take it, some of it, and you sprinkle it on the leper seven times. And then you take some and you wipe a little of that blood on the ear lobe of his right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Okay, now that the leper is thoroughly confused. Next, you do a few other things. You shave all the, the entire body of the leper. They go and wash themselves. There's some other details here about time away and then coming back and, and per, re, repeating part, parts of that ritual. It's quite the process, and by the time it's all said and done, the priest can say to the leper, and now you're good to go. You're fully cleansed, you are ritually pure, and you can resume normal life as a member of the house of Israel. Okay. Now what's Jesus saying to this man that's just been healed? Go back to the priest as a testimony of, for him and perform the ritual of Leviticus 14. Because I want this to be a testimony to you also, and to them, and to all of us, of what just happened here. Because the cleansing of the, of the, of the leper is one of, to me, the most beautiful rituals you'll ever see in the book of Leviticus. As I said in that lesson last year, I sometimes wish bishops kept birds in their offices, and clay pots, and scarlet, scarlet and hyssop, and cedar. So that when a leper, someone who is rotting from the inside out, whether minor sins, quote-unquote, nothing's minor, we'll see that in a moment, or major transgressions full of leprosy, as you have brought forth fruit, meat for repentance, and allowed the atonement of Christ to cleanse you, if you've let the high priest who can be touched by the feelings of our infirmity, if you let him touch you and change you and heal you, to the point that that priest, that bishop can say to you, I will, or he will, be thou clean? Is there a lesson we need to learn beyond simply the feeling of our guilt being swept away? 
Well, imagine this. Thank you for coming in to speak with me. Thank you for confessing and forsaking your sins. Thank you for coming to know Christ through the process of repentance and bringing forth fruit, meat for that. There's just one more thing we need to do before I can allow you to partake of the sacrament again or be rebaptized if you'd been excommunicated. One last ritual before you know for sure that all is well. Would you hold these two birds while I gather a few other things and head out behind the chapel where there's a little stream? Now, if you've read Leviticus 14, you're looking at these birds going, I'm really sorry. Uh, I, I, I know what is about to happen to one of you. Well, reluctantly, but obediently, you go out with the bishop, and the bishop says, give me one of the birds, and you're, you're hesitant. Uh, no, 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 I don't want... Please give me one of the birds. Takes the bird, puts it in the clay pot, holding it out over the, living, of the running water. Yes, the living water. Oh, is that what this represents? The water is moving, which makes it pure. It's, it's moving, it's living. This is living water springing up within me unto everlasting life. This is a bird going into a clay pot. This one confused me for ages until I remembered something that King Benjamin said, that when Jesus would come, the Lord God Almighty come among us, he said he would come and dwell in a tabernacle of clay. Remember Adam made from the dust? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's what we're made of. So for Christ, how the spirit of the Lord Remember the Spirit, the Holy Ghost descending like a dove? Birds. Oh, yeah. Birds are not earthbound. Birds are free to fly like the Spirit on wind and breath and spirit on wings. Okay. So if a bird represents spirit and clay pot represents mortal earthly tabernacle, the flesh, then the word was made flesh, the bird descended into a mortal body. The bird in the clay pot, there's the birth of Jesus. And yes, it's Jesus, because he's the living water. Well, if that represents Christ, then you take one of those birds and sacrifice it. Well, there's the sacrifice of Christ. And his death, the shedding of his blood, so that the other bird... And who's that other bird? That's us. It could have been me in that pot. He just picked one bird at random to stick it in. Well, it wasn't random in this case. I was the bird that belonged there. I'm the one guilty of sin. It should have been me paying the price for it. And that price is death. Capital punishment for sin. Cut off from the presence of God. And yet Jesus swoops in. And takes our place. Then what? I am taken and immersed in the blood of the lamb. In this case, the blood of the bird. I'm wrapped up in scarlet and hyssop and cedar. That one, I racked my brain for, for a long time because I couldn't figure that. What does any of that have to do? And then I remembered, wait, I know I've read about hyssop somewhere. And thankfully, Leviticus is not much farther beyond Exodus, and Exodus is where I had remembered reading about hyssop. During the Passover ritual, when you take the blood of the lamb to paint your doorposts with, what do you use as your paintbrush? You use hyssop plant. It's kind of this long, stringy kind of paintbrush-like plant, and you dip it in the blood of the lamb, and then you paint your doorframe as representation that I'm being freed from bondage 
because the firstborn is about to die instead of my firstborn or instead of me. I'm finally free. And then when I thought about it, wait, so if hyssop has to do with Passover, and then all of a sudden the cedar wood and the scarlet material fell into place. Because cedar wood, well, there's your door frame. And scarlet material, there's the blood of the lamb. Just by wrapping things up in scarlet and cedar, cedar and hyssop, it's like a miniature version of the Passover. And I am wrapping up this living bird in Passover symbolism, dipping it in the, in the blood of the bird that was sacrificed so that I can then fly free. I can rise with healing in my wings because of the healing of, that that other bird offered. This is such a magnificent ritual. Just to make sure it sinks in and stays with you. Let's take some of this bird blood and sprinkle the leper seven times. Seven meaning perfection, totality, completeness, wholeness. Seven days of creation. Ah, yes, this is a new creation. You're clean. No wonder you shave all the hair off your body. It's like you're coming out of the womb all over again. A, a newborn, rebirth. No wonder you're going to go out and immerse yourself in water to cleanse yourself. Coming out of the womb all over again. A new beginning, a new life. Let's make sure we add a little blood also, though, to the ear and the thumb and the toe. All on the right side, this covenant hand, this covenant side. Because if it's on my ear, then chances are everything I hear or see or think about, all of the senses of the head will be covered by that atoning blood. And on my thumb... So that everything I do from now on will be covered by that atoning blood. And my big toe, everywhere I go, I want to stay on the straight and narrow path. Because I know what it costs when I deviate. I don't want more birds to die. So everything I think, everything I do, everywhere I go, I want to be covered by the atonement of Christ. This... Can you see what Jesus is teaching this leper and the priest and us? Do you understand, my dear friend, how you became clean? You see why I wish there were bird cages in bishops' offices? Because too often we think, oh, I confessed and forsook. I'm done. I'm good. No. Without the death of Christ, there's still no cleanliness. And you need to understand what it cost him so you could fly free. There's something magnificent about this entire account and what Jesus is trying to... He's still teaching. He's down from the mount, but he's still teaching sermons, even as he's performing miracles. Now, as we saw, Jesus had said to this leper, can you please help me keep the messianic secret? It's not time yet for the world to know who I am. It's start, word's starting to spread, believe me, that can't be helped. But can you help it, please? Well, in the Matthew account, it seems like he may have been able to. Then again, Matthew just may have shifted gears and turned the attention elsewhere. Because in the Mark account, no, he couldn't help himself. And in Mark 1, verse 45, this leper went out and began to publish it much. And to blaze abroad the matter, insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in desert places. And they came to him from every quarter. <laughs> They couldn't help it. This leper couldn't help it. It makes me wonder, why can we help it? Why don't we share the good news? 
more than we do? Why don't we leap to the, to the stand on fast and testimony meeting to blaze abroad what God has done for us? Why don't we share with other people the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that the only reason we are cleansed and have hope and healing is because of him? To get to the point where people will seek Christ from every quarter, that's our goal. In fact, the Luke version adds to this. He says in Luke 5.15, But so much the more went there a fame abroad of him. And great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. This is growing popularity. This is the, the news spreading far and wide, blazing abroad, and people coming, knowing this is where I can come to be healed. And interestingly enough, what's Jesus do throughout it all? He wasn't playing hard to get. So yeah, don't say it. Don't say anything. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. No, he was trying to maintain. Well, he was trying to do what he just said. Don't blaze it abroad. Don't stand on the corners of the streets or there in the synagogues, letting people know how amazing you are. Well, notice what he does also, though. Luke 5, verse 16. Right in the midst of all of these multitudes fawning all over him, he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. Here's Jesus withdrawing from the clamoring crowds, avoiding the praises and the popularity, praying for pure motives, to stay connected to an audience of one, namely his Father in heaven. Can we do likewise and avoid the, the shouts of praise and humbly turn to a wilderness where we can be alone and be with God? Now, the Luke account of this story is then followed immediately by the story of lowering the man through the roof to be healed. And again, you'd have to find other ways to get to Jesus since there are always multitudes around him. But that's the Luke version. Matthew is going to give us a few other miracles before we get to that one. So let's turn next to a second miracle we'll study this week. And this is the healing of the centurion's son, uh, servant. It's a beautiful miracle. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 through 7, we see it begin to unfold. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, which has become kind of his base of operations in the Galilee. Remember back in Nazareth, that didn't end well after he made this messianic announcement at the Nazareth synagogue. They tried to kill him at the edge of town. So he's not, not staying in Nazareth anymore. Now he's going to be in Capernaum. But there came unto him a centurion. And a centurion, century, sent, think of 100 a centurion is a Roman soldier that is in charge of roughly 100 soldiers. This is a mover and shaker. This is a, a man in authority. This is someone that the Jews would most likely fear and most likely hate. They hate publicans for working for Rome. Imagine a Roman soldier. You are the embodiment of the Roman thumb that you are being crushed by. The, the, the boot on your back. Well, this particular centurion beseeches Jesus and says to him, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. The Luke version actually adds that the servant was dear unto him. So this is a person that I care about. It, Luke also adds that this servant was ready to die. Kind of that full of leprosy kind of detail. He's at the verge of death. Time is of the essence. There's no time to wait. This is an absolute 911 emergency. So no wonder the centurion is rushing to go see Jesus as quickly as he can. Now, Jesus says to him, I will come and heal him. 
Now, notice one detail. Had the centurion actually asked him to do anything? No, he'd simply said, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Here's the situation. And Jesus, without having to be asked, simply says, oh, if that's the situation, let me go, let me go fix it. Let me come and heal him. Remind you of the marriage at Cana? When, Jesus, when Mary comes to Jesus and just explains the situation, there's no more wine. And never actually asks anything specific of Jesus. Just trusts not only his omnipotence, but his omniscience. You'll know what to do. And he does. In this case, I'll come. This is Jesus in 3 Nephi 17, recognizing on the faces of the multitudes, they want me to stay a little longer. And they would ask, but they don't have the courage to actually speak up. I'll stay. And he does. This is uh, Doctrine and Covenant section 58, that if you have to be told everything, if you have to be compelled or commanded, oh, you're a slothful and not a wise servant. And Jesus is anything but that. But notice what comes next in the, in the Luke account. Only Luke's going to remind us of this. Chapter 7, verse 3 through 5. When he heard of Jesus, we've got to backtrack a little bit. This is a centurion. He's just hearing rumors and reports that are circulating. He's a man in authority. He's got ears everywhere, these hundred troops that he's over. But when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. So he didn't go personally. And that's a really important detail as the story progresses. Instead, he sends the elders of the Jews. I mean, this is a Jewish Oh, rabbi, some Jewish teacher that goes around performing amazing miracles. So let's send a Jew to go talk to the Jew. The elders, they're in charge. And perhaps they'll, he'll listen to them. He beseeches him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, or immediately, quickly. Remember, it's, he's ready to die. We've got to go fast. And this is what they said. That he, the centurion, was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. So, huh, unlike what you would have expected, we're surprised here. And Luke is wonderful at surprising us and portraying outsiders as insiders and helping his Gentile audience know that you don't have to be Jewish, born and bred, to be loved by the God of Israel. And so here's this outsider, this centurion, who loves the Jews. And in return, is loved by the Jews. He's not a despised publican. He's not a hated or feared Roman. Yeah, he's one of them, but he's really one of us. I mean, he built us a synagogue, a place for us to worship. Maybe he wishes he could enter and worship right alongside us. Is he trapped by his tribe as well? forced to worship the Roman pantheon when he, when he knows better? I don't know. I wish we knew him better than we do. But this is a servant leader. This is a good soul. And the people of Israel seem to know it. But what does he think of himself? I can't go see Jesus personally. I am a Gentile after all. I'm a Roman. So let's go send the Jews to speak with him. And, ins and insi insiders to talk to an insider. And then what? Verse 6 and 7. Then Jesus went with them. Oh, okay. He sounds, sounds worthy to me. Let's go. And when he was now not far from the house, getting closer and closer, the centurion sent friends to him, 
saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. Now, thank you, Luke, for, remember, for remembering this and reminding us of it, that there is this sense of unworthiness on the centurion's part. And yet, how do the Jews see him? These elders of the Jews? Oh, he's worthy. That's the same word they used. He thinks he's not, but his friends think he is. How's that for humility? That we don't even admit our, our worthiness and instead admit and acknowledge our unworthiness. He sends the elders of the Jews first, and Jesus keeps coming. He sends friends second. He keeps sending people so Jesus doesn't have to come down to his level. And yet Jesus tends to look up at people that society tends to look down upon. And so he keeps on coming. In verse 8 and 9, now we're back to the Matthew account, okay? Matthew 8, verse 8 and 9. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof. That's what we saw in the, pre, in the Luke account. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. How's that for faith? And faith from a distance. This is the kind of miracle that he could have, Jesus could have performed for the leper. I'm just going to speak the, world, I mean, the word only because I can't get close to you. Well, in this case, this is kind of like the centurion feeling like a leper socially. I'm not your people. You guys hate us. So there's no ill feelings from me toward you. But if I'm a Gentile, you probably can't even come into the home of a Gentile. Wouldn't that be some kind of ceremonial impurity too? So keep your distance for your sake and just say the word. I know that my servant shall be healed. This is another one of those... If thou wilt, thou canst. I know that. But then he starts to explain one of the reasons why he, he didn't want Jesus to come. And why he'd sent elders of the Jews. And why he'd sent friends and just servants and other people. Rather than coming to Jesus directly and asking him to come. Amazing explanation. He says, for I am a man under authority. You could say a man of authority. Yes, there's people over me. I'm under their authority. But there's a hundred men under my authority too. I, he explains that. Having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go. And he goeth. And to another, come. And he cometh. And to my servant, do this. And he doeth it. Now, do you understand what he's hinting at here? He's saying to Jesus, by profession, I give orders all day. That's all I ever do is, is make demands of people, and they do it immediately. You, you, don't want to be, you don't want to have a disobedient army. And so if there's one thing the military is synonymous with, it's military discipline. And they obey every word I say in the moment I say it. I can't afford to let people think that that's what I'm doing with you. I know who the real Lord is here. I know who the master in this situation is, and it isn't me. I'm a centurion, but you're the commander-in-chief. And if I'm a man under authority, it's your authority. I'd rather be under. So I'm trying to avoid even the appearance of exercising authority over thee. 
I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. I will not allow other people to think, oh, these Romans think they got Jesus wherever they want him, and they can snap their finger, and Jesus has to come running. No, you're in charge. And thy will, not mine, be done. This is true humility. This is knowing where the source of authority really lies. And I love this centurion for it. He does love the people. He loves... He does want to build synagogues. He does want to honor the the Lord of Israel that is right there among them. It's so amazing. Well, it was amazing to Jesus. Really? That's how humble and submissive you are? That you're dropping hints, you're explaining the situation, you're sending friends. You don't want it to look like you are controlling or commanding me. That's amazing. It's amazing. In fact, verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled. I wonder, can we exercise so much faith, so much humility, so much submission, that it leaves the Lord marveling? Does he ever scratch his head and look at us and go, man, that, that's an amazing person. That's a celestial soul. Well, that's what he's feeling about this centurion. Now, in the Luke account, it says that Jesus turned him about. And it's hard to tell who the him is. Is the hymn Jesus? Is Jesus just doing an about face? Or is, he tur- is the hymn the centurion? Is he turning the centurion around? I mean, has he reached the house by that point and no a number of elders of the Jews or friends of the, of the Romans uh, have been able to dissuade Jesus from coming to meet the man himself? I know you don't want me to come. I'm coming. You may think your house is unclean or will make me unclean. Uh-uh. You can't contaminate me. But I want to meet this guy. This person is amazing. And so he... And I, I just wondered, is the centurion turning away? Like, I can't even bear to, to look at you. And so Jesus has to kind of turn him around. Look at me. I want to see you eye to eye. You're amazing to me. I marvel at you. Or is he having this conversation with the man, and he's so amazed by him that he turns him around so that the centurion faces the multitude, which are probably a lot of Jews that have been following Jesus everywhere that he goes. And so is he trying to let the Jews see this centurion and the centurion see the Jews and make a connection like you guys have more in common than you realize? Oh, a love of the God of Israel, a messianic hope that's being fulfilled in me. Because notice what he does here. Jesus turned him about, and now we can go back to the Matthew account, and he said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. Do you see who this guy is? He outranks us. And I'm not talking militarily. I'm talking spiritually. An outsider with more faith than the insiders? This guy's amazing. Do you see who this guy is? Get a load of him. I just love the thought of Jesus. I've met people like this that are so good at reflecting praise back to the person or on to God that they just, it's not enough for them to say to a person, wow, you really impress me. It's no, you want to put your arm around this person, turn them around to your other friends and say, isn't this guy amazing? That way, it's not just your friendship he's leaving with, but the friendship and admiration of everyone else. It's amazing what we can do to build up other people in the sight of those that have their eyes on us. Sharing that popularity, giving it to other people instead of keeping it to yourself. Jesus is a master at that. He wants everyone else to marvel too. He goes on and says to them, 
I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whoa. Now, I would have expected that in the Luke account, honestly, because he's elevating a Gentile. This is the, that would have been more in line with what Luke said about the synagogue of Nazareth. Remember? Uh, there were plenty of Israelite lepers when Elisha healed a Syrian one named Naaman. There were plenty of Israelite widows when Elijah multiplied the loaves and the fishes to a Canaanite, a, a Phoenician there in, in the widow of Zarephath. Jesus was popping the bubble of this sense of superiority that his people felt about themselves. And Luke loved popping that bubble. But Matthew, the Jew writing to Jews saying this, this is gutsy on his part, to record Jesus saying, oh, some of our own people aren't going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. How are you reacting to Jesus? Do you believe? Do you exercise faith? Are you humble enough to submit to his will? Or are you making demands that the Messiah be one that follows military orders? Is that what you're expecting? Are you expecting your Messiah to be like the centurion in terms of military might instead of like the centurion in terms of humility and submission? Don't expect the lion this time. This time we're getting lamb. And the lamb of God is among us. Don't turn away from him, fellow Jews. This is who we've been waiting for all along. Even Gentiles can see that. So no wonder those will come from the east and from the west, beyond the borders of Israel, invited into the kingdom of God. Because they're more godly than many of us. Amazing how often Jesus will do things like that. Pop our bubble. Turn us outward. Turn outsiders inward. Help us see one another. There's, you have more in common than you realize. And you, within the household of faith, could learn a lot from the faith of those that you consider on the opposite side of things. Let's talk, talk about a ministry of reconciliation. Jesus is doing just that. Then he says in verse 13, or at least Matthew records this, Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the self-same hour. Notice the phrase there, as thou hast believed, so will it be done. That he seems to be establishing kind of a, a, a proportionality. As if to say, in direct proportion to your amount of faith, as thou hast believed. In direct proportion to that, so will be the, the miracle. Faith not only precedes the miracle, but faith seems to equal the miracle as far as how much of a miracle do you need? Well, how much faith do you have? And the fact that this servant was healed, this beloved servant, a, a, a man that meant so much to the centurion, healed in the selfsame hour, well, <laughs> that, how's that for sufficient faith on the part of this outsider? Now, if you thought the that a leper was one untouchable, and that a Roman soldier was another untouchable. Well, prepare yourself for the third untouchable that Matthew is going to list. 
I mean, this one might send shiver, shivers down your spine. It's no mere leper, unclean, unclean. No mere Roman that's making demands. This time, it's a mother-in-law. <laughs> now, I joke that I, that I can't joke about mothers-in-law because my mother-in-law has ruined that for me. She's amazing. I admire her and I honor her and I can't say anything negative. Every time somebody does a stereotypical mother-in-law joke, I feel left out because mine's so good. But to borrow the, again, I don't know if, if mother-in-law jokes are so old that that's what Matthew is, is smiling or winking at. But in some ways that this is a person removed from the immediate family. Okay, So think about a leper cut off from the family. A centurion that's not ever been a part of the family, and in fact seems to fight the family. And now uh, it's just an in-law. I'm kind of stuck with them because I married, I happened to marry her daughter. Now this is Peter, uh, soon to be the chief apostle. We'll get to know him better and better as time goes on. But in chapter 8 of Matthew, verse 14 and 15, very brief story. When Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother. So she's, was she visiting? Is she, does she live there? It's hard to tell. But she's down for the count. She is laid it says, and sick of a fever. What does Jesus do? Again, without being told a thing in the Matthew account, he recognizes the situation she's in. He touched her hand. Mark actually says he took her by the hand and lifted her up. But either way, what happened next? Just with that healing touch, the fever left her. And then how does she respond? This is interesting. She arose and ministered unto them. Honestly, this miracle makes me wonder, what do I do with the health and strength that the Savior gives me? What do I do with the time and talents he's offered me? What do I do with anything God gives me? Do I give it right back to him? Do I consecrate to him knowing that it came from him to begin with? If you remember the, the fishermen that have their nets filled to overflowing, so they finally have something to sacrifice in following Christ. That's true of all of us. In whatever we have to give God, it came from him to begin with. Before he came, Peter's mother-in-law was laid out flat, feverish, unable to minister to anyone, needing others to minister to her, to her. But Jesus comes. And after he's done with her, she never wants to be done with him. How can I? It's not paying you back. It's not some debt I'm trying to be free of. No, you have shown thy love can I show you mine? Do we minister to him and to those he wants us to minister to with the gifts that he's given us? There's one other detail, by the way, from the Mark account where it mentions that Peter and Andrew and James and John, all these fellow fishermen, are together there in Simon's house. They see that they know that, that, that his mother-in-law is sick. And in Mark's version, it says, Anon, they tell him of her. Anon means immediately. As soon as they realize the situation, they're like the, the, the elders of the Jews. They're like the, the, the friends of the centurion. They're the ones rushing out to Jesus saying, can you do something here? We are aware of a situation you might not be aware of. And we want, you to, we want to make it known. I worry sometimes that we're not anon enough. <laughs> we're not quick enough. We don't immediately think to turn to the Lord when we're suffering or when other people are. 
we think of all other kinds of options and well, let's, who can I call uh, as far as mortal help is concerned? We got to get 911 or get you to the doctor. I'm not saying we shouldn't turn in those directions. We definitely should. But anon, immediately, the first thought that should come into our mind is, is God aware of this? Well, of course he is. But can I speak to him about this situation and ask for his help? I'm always amazed that people who the first time they hear that somebody's going through something hard, they immediately respond with something like, I'm going to put your name in the prayer roll at the temple. I'm going today and, and immediately, anon, I will do this. Or immediately, I'm praying for you. And not just saying it, but actually doing it. And the moment we know of someone's need, bowing our head and asking the Lord to help them. To anon tell God of this situation, trusting that God will know just what to do, and he does. Well, it's not just for lepers, and it's not just for centurion servants, and it's not just for mothers-in-law. News continues to spread, no messianic secret anymore. And if you look at Matthew 8, verse 16 and 17, when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. We'll see a specific instance of that in a moment. He cast out the spirits with his word, he is the Word made flesh, after all. He healed all that were sick. And why? As far as Matthew's concerned, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. This is the Matthew who always quotes Scripture as often as he can, especially if it's a messianic prophecy. And here's one that's as messianic as it gets. This is Isaiah 53 he's drawing upon. That which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bear our sicknesses. Isaiah 53 is the, the song of the suffering servant, that with his stripes we are healed, that surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's what's happening here. And as Matthew is watching the miraculous ministry of Christ unfold, Isaiah 53 pops into his mind. It's interesting because Christians see Jesus so clearly in Isaiah 53. It's like, how do you miss him? But that begs the question. Judaism does not see Jesus in Isaiah 53. How, how do they interpret that verse? It's interesting because they have uh, an incredibly rich history of biblical interpretation. And I'm always grateful for, to, to see what other people are seeing in Scripture. For Jews that read Isaiah 53, they see the suffering servant as themselves, the house of Israel. And that we are suffering because of the sinfulness of the world. Look what they're doing to us. And that we just need to be strong and bear it. And God will bless us for it and be with us. It's a beautiful interpretation. It's true. It's just not complete, in my opinion. And in more important, who cares about my opinion? In Matthew's opinion which is fascinating, a Jew writing to fellow Jews, saying to them, don't confine yourself to a limited interpretation of Isaiah 53, saying that the house of Israel is the suffering servant. Oh, I have actually seen God's suffering servant before me. And he has come down to bear our griefs, to take our infirmities, to suffer our sickness, He's doing it. It's as if he's absorbing it, metabolizing it, taking that weakness out of his 
out of the people he loves and replacing it with his strength. Virtue flowing out of him every time. That's the Messiah we've been looking for. And Matthew knows it. Other people are starting to know it more and more as well. And so in verse 18 and 19, Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, I mean, everywhere he goes, that's what you'll find, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. I mean, there's more people over there that are going to need more help and healing. So let's go. But a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Now a scribe said that? Aren't the scribes among those people that are always making Jesus an offender for a word because they're so true to the text that they can't handle anyone raising the bar on, on Moses? Well, that's the stereotype, but this one doesn't fit the mold. This certain scribe is unlike the others. They aren't all bad, and Jesus would have known that. But notice his response. As this humble scribe says, forget the book. I'm looking at the Word Himself. Can I come? I'll go anywhere you go. I'll, I'll do anything you say. I, 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 caught some, I caught wind of the Sermon on the Mount and what you said about us scribes. Uh, and it's not just what the law says, it's what you say. Well, I'm here to hear what you say. Uh, people kept telling me that you teach as one having authority and not as the scribes. Well, here's a scribe bowing to your authority. So, can I come? And Jesus responds, he saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. In some ways, this is the exact opposite of what we saw back in John chapter 1, when these would-be disciples come and ask, So where do you live? And what does Jesus say? Well, come and see. Come and see. And not just where I live, but more importantly, how I live. Well, this is back to a question of where. And now Jesus doesn't have an answer. It's not come and see where I live, because now I live everywhere. I live everywhere people need me. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, behold, look at the fowls of the air. God provides for them. In this case, he provides nests for them, but that same creator hasn't given himself a nest to call his own. No, I've left Nazareth behind. Capernaum is now my base of operations, but... I mean, we were at Simon's house, a lot of disciples there. We'll see in a moment Matthew's house. We'll see a, another, a different Simon and his house. Jesus is now a wandering preacher because the word of God can't be stationary. It has to spread like the good news is intended to. So no more place for me to lay my head. Will you come you, if, you want to be, if you want to come home with me, then you're asking for homelessness. You're asking for a life where you'll go wherever I send you. Is that really what you want? I actually remember when I was uh, fresh home from my mission, just wanted to be a seminary teacher, wanted to continue my mission as long as I could. And the closest thing I could do after teaching at the MTC was, well, teach the gospel for a living uh, as a seminary or institute teacher. And so I dove into that, uh, the, into the preparation program for that, hoping I'd make it. At the same time, I was starting to date uh, because I, uh, I knew the next step also included marriage. And I was really worried. Like, it's one thing for me to choose that, this kind of life. Because as a seminary institute teacher, I, I, it's the closest thing to being 
a missionary, and as a missionary, I didn't go where I wanted to go. I went wherever the mission president sent me. Uh, there is, it's not quite that, <laughs> that strict within church education, but there is a certain degree of your life is not your own, and where does the Lord need me, and I'll go wherever you send me. And I was actually looking forward to that life. When they first hired us and, and said, my wife and I were married by then, and said, where would you like to go? And we said, anywhere. I mean, it's, it's an adventure. Wherever the Lord needs us, send us. And we were shocked when he said, okay, how about Utah Valley? I said, what, what, really? Isn't that where everybody wants to go? Don't, don't waste a spot on us. Send us out in the mission field. Well, he did later. But in Tennessee, it hadn't been our choice. Just said, this is where we feel that you need to go. And the Spirit came rushing in saying, yep, it's where the Lord needs you. And I'm like, oh, okay, then forget my plans. I'll go wherever you want me to go. And it's been that way in, in moving back to Utah and, and every assignment that I've had, I felt the Lord's hand. But expecting a wife to do that? Hmm. Boyd K. Packer used to laugh and joke that because he was a seminary teacher too, and he called it a life of obscurity and poverty. And bring it on. I, it was kind of my monastic vows. I, I was more interested in building the kingdom than b even building a family. Shame on me. But I, was, I had my, mon my Mormon monastery all picked out, and I was going to take on the ascetic vows of obscurity and poverty. And I loved it. I was excited for that. But I did wonder, who's going to want to marry that? Who's going to want to marry somebody that basically says, I'm going to be less than a fox and less than a, than a bird because I don't really care about a hole or a nest. I just want to follow Jesus. That's a tall order. And I, I remember the first time I heard my wife drive up. We just barely started dating. And I heard her, I, I say heard instead of seen, because you could hear her car before you saw it. It was such so loud and just awful sounding, like this thing needs to go to the shop ASAP. And when she finally drove up in the most hideous, old beater of a car. It was affectionately known as the brown embarrassment. And it was embarrassing to everyone except my wife, who I remember she was teaching at the MTC at the time, and she stepped out in her church clothes from this embarrassing brown car, totally unfazed by it. I mean, I would have been embarrassed. And my car was almost as bad as hers was. My car had a hanger that we stuck in the antenna hole to try to get some reception because the antenna had broken off. Uh, her car, though, had, I mean, you had to be careful how you sat in the driver's seat because there were springs poking up through the upholstery and you didn't want to get skewered. Or you could look down through the, like, the gear shift at, and see the ground below because some of the metal frame had been, rot, uh, had been rusted away. So you could see through the car. Uh, it, it, it was rough. And, and she didn't care at all. And when I first saw her, I thought, hmm. She could be a seminary teacher's wife. Now, the, the, the Lord and the church are way more generous than, than I think we often give them credit for. And we've always had sufficient for our needs, and I'm grateful for that. But it was, I was extremely grateful for a wife when she was told, are you sure you want to follow this? Because I can't promise you much of a hole to call home. And we'll probably never get much of a nest egg for our little chicks <laughs> as, we, as we feather our nest. Do you really want to come? And one of the things that impressed me most about, about my wife before I proposed to her was I knew that she just wanted to follow Jesus wherever he'd led. That she would say, 
can I come when you say come and see? And life has been that way, and I'm so grateful for it. Now, that's just the first of two examples we see here. The first is this scribe that wants to come and follow. The second, we don't know as much about him. We don't know his, his prior occupation. But he says in verse 20, it says of him in verse 21 and 22, Another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. In other words, I really want to follow you too. And it doesn't matter where we're going to go. I don't need a nest. I don't need a hole. But I just need a little time. Because my father has either just died and it's time for the funeral, or my father is old and he relies on me and I need to help provide for him. And as soon as he's gone and the funeral is over, then I promise I'll come running. So please, let me do that first. Now, remember what Jesus has said about first things first in the Sermon on the Mount? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Everything else will be added unto you. Well, in this case, what does he say to this man? It sounds a little harsh. It sounds almost unfeeling or insensitive. Because Jesus said unto him, Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Wait, really? That, I can't even... I can't stay in these last years with my father? Or I can't... You can't even let me off for a, a few days to finish the, the, the burial arrangements? Now, we know Jesus better than that. He is always moved with compassion. He cares about us. But he also wants us to know from the very beginning that God will come first in a life of discipleship. I wonder about this because in some ways, by saying, let the dead bury their dead, wait a minute, you're talking about me? I, the, a, the dead can't bury dead. They, they, they can't do anything. They're the ones that need to be buried. True. I would take, thanks for taking things literally. I should go talk to Nicodemus about this. But let's take things symbolically as well. Because there is a side of life and a side of death. Think back to Moses, right? I have set before thee life and death. Wherefore, choose life. And standing before you is the Lord of life. The way, the truth, and the life himself. The light and the life of the world. The resurrection and the life. He'll, he'll use that title for himself so many times. And on my side is life and life eternal. Away from me, away from the life of the world is only death. And on that side is both physical death, which is what your father is facing, and spiritual death which is what anyone faces that chooses not to put God first and foremost in their life. There will be times where the Lord says to take care of those kinds of temporal matters. But it has to be following the Lord as you do so. There will be times where the Lord says, go back and bury the dead. Let's take care of things. Okay? We need Marys and Marthas. We'll meet them and see their, their, the contrary that those two sisters prove themselves later. But... Trust God and follow God in whatever he tells you. In essence, the question boils down to this. Which side are you on? That's the stark reality of what discipleship demands. Which side are you on? Will it be the side of the Lord of life? Or will it be a side where the physically dead are, end up being buried by the spiritually dead because that's all there is, is death, and nobody knows there's something better on the other side?
nobody knows that death in the physical realm is, is succeeded by everlasting life in the spiritual realm? Do they not know that the death of the spirit brought on by sin can be completely healed by the Savior? So let the dead bury their dead. Come and join me. And what you are signing up for will be a life of sacrifice, a life of, of reliance on the Lord instead of the arm of flesh. We'll all be birds without nests, just hoping that the Lord will provide for us. We'll all be foxes with no holes. We'll all be lilies of the field, trusting that God will clothe us even more beautifully than Solomon. We're going to put the kingdom of God first at all costs. No matter what comes, we will consecrate. We will sacrifice. We will obey. We will follow. We'll come and see. And you'll see God working within us in magnificent ways. And what do we call all that? We call it life. Real life. Real living. So not just come and see, come and live. Will he? We'll see. Now with that, we turn back to miracles. In some ways, I think Matthew is still dropping hints that I'm still describing miracles even through that. A miracle that someone would give up a life of ease to take on a life of sacrifice. A miracle if someone would choose the Lord's life over the kind of life that they've been living. These are miracles left and right. But here's another major one that now is going to draw our attention in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 to 25. This is the, the calming of the storm at sea, and I love this one. When he was entered into a ship, and he was going to try to get to the other side, right? The more people on the other side that need us. His disciples followed him, as usual. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. His disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And can you imagine the fear in their voice as they say it? Now, the irony of this is that Jesus is sleeping through the whole thing. The, the ship is covered with waves. It's not like he's below deck. There's no below deck. This is just some small fishing vessel. And, he's, and it's getting pummeled by waves to the point that fishermen who grew up on this lake are scared for their own lives. Lord, save us. We perish. We're going under. We've seen storms like this. And not everyone survives. How on earth could Jesus sleep through that? <laughs> That's amazing. Well, it would be amazing to me if I didn't have the same gift. I seem to be able to sleep through just about anything. I remember when we had our first baby and I woke up with every stir at night, as did my wife. We were both on eggshells, like, is everything okay? And what do we do? And my wife and I actually devised this plan that if we wake up, if the baby wakes us up and it needs food, then obviously my wife's going to take care of it. If the food's already come in and now it's come out, then I'm going to take care of that. Okay? My wife and I were just on opposite ends of digestion. She would feed, I would change diapers. Divide and conquer. Worked out great. But I remember one night where I slept, I woke up the next morning, had a great night's sleep, never woke to anything, never heard a stir, a cry, nothing. And I turned to my wife in like euphoria and said, honey, our she slept through the night. Our little baby girl, she slept through the night. And my wife rolled her eyes, or at least would have if her eyes had been able to be open. 
And she groaned to me and said, you slept through the night. And I laughed like, oh, she didn't. And therefore you didn't. My bad. And, and that's where we clarified. Wake me up if there's ever anything I can do to help. And I won't feel bad about it. Yeah, don't feel guilty about it. But if it's things I can't do anything to help, yeah, yeah, let me sleep. <laughs> and and that's, how we, that's how we ran things. But think about it in these terms. The things that we lose sleep over, Jesus is unfazed by those things. He doesn't lose sleep over the things that keep us up at night. Let's put it that way. Now, this is not an example of an absence of awareness. It's simply an example of an absence of anxiety. God knows what we go through. And I even hesitate to say that he's, he can sleep through it because there's that great verse in the Psalms that says, he who's, who watches over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. Jesus is never asleep on the job. He's always watching. Uh, but in mortality, yes, he hung, he, uh, as King Benjamin says, he suffered hunger, thirst, and fatigue even more than man can suffer except to be unto death. Jesus was literally hungry when he ate, literally thirsty when he drank literally suffered in those days of fasting in the wilderness and was literally exhausted after spending so many days and nights teaching, preaching, healing. Well, I finally am on a boat and maybe I can sleep until we get to the other side. In fact, that's incredible. Good use of time. I'll sleep in transit so that I actually have energy once I get to the other side and there will be more multitudes waiting for me to help, to help and heal them. But this is not self-serving sleep. This is awareness on the part of Jesus, but everything's going to be okay. Because I'm with you. Think about that. Do you really think the boat's going to go under if the Son of God is on board? Can you imagine the headlines in the Capernaum Gazette? Messiah goes down in tragic boating accident? No. The question you should be asking, apostles, is not what's going on outside the ship, but rather, do we have Jesus on board this boat? Because if he's with us, then no danger outside the boat could possibly scare us. The winds and the waves do obey thy will. And so as long as you're with us, then what could be against us? When we're in the midst of our trials and our sufferings and our, and our tribulations and adversity, where are our eyes? On the wind and waves? We'll learn this better even from, from, than this when we meet Peter on the water in a little while. But look in the boat. Make sure Jesus is on board. And then come what may and love it. Maybe I can sleep <laughs> right alongside him. Aware of what's going on, but not over-anxious about it. Remember, take no thought. Don't be overly concerned. God's got this. He certainly does. In fact, in the Mark version, it's made even more powerful. Remember, Mark's account is so often the most dramatic of the four. And that's the case here. Mark 4, verse 36 to 38, listen to his description. 
There were also with him other little ships. And that's an interesting detail. They're not alone on the, on the water here. And so there's probably all kinds of boats filled with fearful fishermen or, or travelers. And Jesus is going to say something that will not just help his own boat load, but everyone else as well. So the, all these little ships. There arose a great storm. The ship is small. The storm is great. I don't like the odds here. There arose a great storm of wind. The waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. Have you ever tried to sleep? I remember on a trek once in Tennessee, sleeping in a sleeping bag that might as well have been a sponge. Because it was one of those southern downpours. And by the time I woke up in the middle of the night freezing, it's because my entire sleeping bag was soaked through. Well, here's Jesus in a boat that is now full Matthew's version, it was covered with the waves. Well, I guess nobody could keep up with the bailing. And now the boat is full. Jesus, meanwhile, was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. At least he had a pillow there. What was he using? I don't know, maybe some, some wadded up nets. But he's asleep on the pillow. Can you just imagine? Let's picture the scene. It's, it's almost comical that everyone else is shouting and screaming and crying out out of fear for their own lives. Jesus is sleeping like a baby. In the back of the boat, completely waterlogged, wind whipping his hair, waves splashing him in the face, and doesn't even stir at all. Well, now he does. They awake him and say unto him, Master. Now, remember what they said in the Matthew version? Save us, we perish. In the Mark version, which always tends to make the disciples look a little worse than the other versions, this time they say, carest thou not that we perish? Ah, Matthews was simply, this is our situation, please help. Mark's version, do you not even care about the situation we're in? There is a hint of accusation there. There is doubt here and not just, not just fear. And why aren't you doing anything? It must be because you don't care. And sadly, we're guilty of the same kinds of things. That when God isn't coming through for us in the moment of our greatest alarm, maybe there's actually not anything to be alarmed about. In fact, have you ever noticed this sometimes when a baby gets hurt and, or, or falls down? And the first thing they do is like look back at mom and dad like, am I supposed to cry right now? It's so interesting. There's something in them where it's like, if mom and dad are scared, then, then I guess I'm supposed to be scared too. And instead, when a baby, you know, a toddler falls and then looks and the parents are just big smiles and like, yay, you're doing great. You're learning. It's, all, it's okay. Then the baby takes their cue from mom and dad, like, oh, I guess that's normal, and that's okay, and I'm going to learn from this. I'll get better. Take your cues from Christ. And when you're in the middle of something intense and, and crazy and just, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it through this, look over at him. And if he looks calm, then try to be calm yourself. It's one of the great things about leaders whether it's military or first responders or sports, and just to have that steady hand and even keel, speaking of being on a boat, here's an even keel. It's okay. We got this. Let's just 
trust. Unlike these apostles that are accusing him of, of not caring. Please, please know of the Lord's care for all of us. And not for an instant should we assume that he's unaware or unfeeling or untouched by the feeling of our infirmities. He's on the boat with us for crying out loud. He's as wet as the rest. And the fact he's willing to join us, that Isaiah 53 verse that Matthew quoted earlier, that he's willing to bear our sickness and stay on the boat when most people would have bailed out long before. We got this. In fact, I'm not worried at all. One other thing to say about this before we hear Jesus' response to them, which is important. There's a part of me that when I read this and they say, carest thou not that we perish? If I was feeling snarky <laughs> as Jesus, I would have said, uh, kind of op peeked open one eye and said, uh, carest thou not that I sleepeth? And the answer is, no, you didn't care. You think I don't care about you, and that's why I'm sleeping. Well, you didn't care that I fell asleep to begin with, because you let it happen. Now, think about this hard. Why were they okay with Jesus falling asleep? And think symbolically, not just literally. Literally, it's like, oh yeah, he's had a long day. Uh, and, and we're the fishermen, we know how to do this, so if he can catch some Z's on the way, then great. It's like, I'll drive so you can sleep for a while, okay? Fantastic. But think about it symbolically. Where are they? They're on the Sea of Galilee. And who's in the boat? Christ's apostles. We don't call them apostles yet, we'll get that in a later chapter, but here's his disciples. And you get Peter, and James, and John, and Andrew, and what do those four do for a living? They were fishermen. Where'd they grow up? Sea of Galilee. This is their home turf. This is their comfort zone. Of course you can fall asleep, Jesus. We got this. I mean, we can't perform the miracles you perform. We can't teach it the way you teach. He had actually corrected on that in a, in a moment. But we got, we got boating. We got the Sea of Galilee. So you go ahead and sleep. We don't need your help here. So go ahead and fall asleep. And then what happens? They're thrown out of their comfort zone. There's nothing comfortable about this now. They, I grew up on this lake and I've never seen anything like this. Or I'm fearing for my life and I don't know what to do. We are going to drown. A bunch of fishermen drowning on a small inland lake. How's that for ironic? Not quite as prepared for everything as you thought, were you, Peter? Actually, more like Simon now. Not, not very rock-like. But you were content to let me sleep. I think one of our biggest dangers is when we find ourselves in our comfort zone. All is well, I got this, and we are content to let the Savior sleep. Sadly, I've been guilty of this sometimes in my teaching career. Because it's my career. It's what I do. It's what, it's what I was made for. Because I can't think of anything else I'd be qualified to do otherwise. <laughs> and there are times where, sadly, I think I, have, I haven't cared 
to keep Jesus awake and alert and hand on the, on the rudder the whole time. It's been more like, you know, there's probably some other newer teachers that don't know what they're doing. Go help them. I've taught this stuff before. Uh, I've been at this for a long time. I got this. And that's when I crash and burn. That's when the waves and the winds pick up and all of a sudden I'm freaking out like I'm perishing in front of my students. And this lesson is a train wreck and it's not going anywhere. And why did I ever want to become a teacher to begin with? I can't do this. Sometimes we do that in our profession. Sometimes we do it in our calling. Sometimes we do it in our relationships. There's so many areas of life that we let Jesus sleep because we're good at it. And it's our comfort zone and we think we got it. I've actually said this before that I've learned it many a time, that when we think we can do something on our own, God usually lets us try. And that's the scary part. Oh, you got this? <laughs> okay, you got this. Until we don't got this. And sadly, we go and accuse him of leaving us alone when it was us that left him out. Don't let Jesus sleep. Make sure he is awake by being awake to your needs, your reliance on him. Well, Jesus responds in verse 26 and 27. He leaves all those lessons unsaid, but does vocalize this one. He saith unto them, why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? In the Mark version, he says, why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? How could it be, after all you've seen, all I've done, how could you fear? How could you not have faith? And then he arose and rebuked the wind and the sea. We get the Savior's words in Mark, where he says, peace be still. And as a result, the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And not just on the water, calm in the hearts of the people he was traveling with. In fact, more than calm, there was shock and awe. It says the men marveled. In Mark's account, they feared exceedingly, which is interesting. They replaced one kind of fear with a different type. But this was the better type. This is the awe and reverence before God. They said, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? What manner of man? Well, no mere man. This is the Son of God. This is the Lord of heaven and earth. This is the Creator who, back in Genesis 1, the Spirit moved upon the face of the waters and brought calm, dry land out of a stormy sea, out of the great deep, which is so often used as a symbol for chaos. Out of chaos, when everything seems to be going crazy all around us, what can Jesus say? Peace, be still. And as, and as has often been said, when he doesn't calm the storm, he can calm the sailor, if we'll let him. A great calm, you better believe it, because of the manner of man that Jesus is. Can we, are we ready to get off the boat and climb uphill? east of Galilee because there's still a storm taking place. But it's not on the sea. It's within the soul. 
of a man that for far too long has never had anyone able to say to him, peace, be still, because he is possessed of devils. And you want to talk about the chaos uh, and the turbulence being filled to the brim of your boat where you're about to sink under this anxious load. Then go meet Legion. We've already met a centurion that was responsible for a hundred soldiers. Well, a legion technically is 6,000 men. And a man possessed of a legion's worth of devils. And he's not in control of it. They're in control of him. What are we going to see next? Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, the story begins. When he was come to the other side, into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. Behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? How so interesting here. Now, let me clarify one thing first. The Matthew version, it says there were two men possessed of devils. In all the other accounts, there's just one. And the JST of Luke, excuse me, the JST of Matthew there's only one here also. So somehow this mistake crept in. But then again, who cares about the numbers? Because whether it's one or two or a legion, ah, that's really what we're up against. How many problems is this man dealing with? How many, how many things are on his mind? There's a legion of them. I can't keep, I can't even, I lose track. They're innumerable. No wonder I'm finding myself among the tombs, exceeding fierce. No one can even pass by this way. Actually, think about the symbolism here. It's really powerful. And actually, for the symbolism, two is better than one. Because if this man lives among the tombs, we're automatically thinking of death. But aren't there two deaths to fear, not just one? Yes, there's physical death, but there's also spiritual death. And it's the dead that bury the dead. And I want to avoid the whole side of it so I can come to the Lord of life. The, uh, the tombs that are there, in fact, what else did he say about it? They're so fierce that no one could pass. None of us make it through life without succumbing to physical and spiritual death. No wonder Jacob called them the monster. Because there's no escaping them. And none of us will pass through life unscathed by sin. And none of us get to the other side of eternal life without passing through death's doorway first. And what will Jesus do? He's going to rebuke both deaths. He's going to cast them both out. In fact, he'll cast them back into that sea of chaos out of which calm creation emerges. Now, the, the legion of devils knows that. And they're scared to death of it. In fact, the way they say it, they, first they recognize Jesus for who he is, which is always interesting to me. They call him by name, Jesus, thou son of God. You look familiar. I don't, didn't I see you in pre-mortality? Oh, great. The last time I saw you, you cast us out. Are you here to do that again? Because, wait, 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 wait. I know when all is said and done, we lose this thing. But don't we get to play for a while in the meantime? Don't we get to wreak some havoc 
You see, the irony of all of this is the way they say it at the end. Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? I know the time will come where you ultimately cast the devil himself and all of us junior devils with him down into the bottomless pit. This is the book of Revelation that speaks of that and describes Christ as the only one having the key to open it, cast evil into it, and then seal it all up so we can be free. But not yet. That's the book of Revelation. That's the end times. But now, don't we get... Isn't that what Satan was suggesting when he said to Jesus, worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the, of the earth, because they're mine, at least for now. I'm amazed that Jesus, who will ultimately win, sometimes grants us victory in advance. The day will come where Satan is bound. Let's bind him early, shall we? And let's, let's cast out some of these devils prematurely by way of their timetable, but just in the nick of time as far as you are concerned. Jesus will do just that. Well, with that as backdrop, watch Watch the drama unfold. And for drama, let's go to Mark, because he's the best source of the drama. Mark's account is found in Mark chapter 5. And starting in verse 2, let's meet this man. And there's only one this time. A man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. Same detail we saw before. And no man could bind him. No, not with chains. In Matthew's version, nobody could pass through there. But in Mark's version, they tried, I mean, this is straitjacket. This is, is shackles and fetters and chains trying to protect themselves from him and maybe trying to protect himself from himself. But no, they wouldn't work. No man could bind him. No, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him. The fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. Again, sound like physical death, sound like spiritual death. We talk about the chains of death and the bonds of hell. They bind us. We can't break out of them. Death itself is what breaks out all, on all of us. In fact, and always, Mark continues, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying, cutting himself with stones. The way he's being described here, by the way, in our day, of more advanced medicine, this sure sounds a lot like mental illness in some of its most extreme forms. Is that one person? Is that two people? Is that a legion of people? Is this schizophrenia? Is this multiple personality disorder? The fact that they're trying to chain him up and bind him, that does sound like the straitjacket. To have them break out of those things in this almost superhuman strength because they are literally out of their minds and trying wherever they can to get out of their bodies. Is this suicidal ideation? Is this self-harm? He's crying and cutting himself, which sometimes happens when I can't feel anything. I just want to feel something, even if it's pain. To remind myself that I am here, that I exist, that I'm alive. But I don't know how much longer I can be because the life that I am quote-unquote living is death and hell in advance. And I can't do this. 
much longer. To think about what this poor soul is going through. In the ancient world, they would have had no understanding of what mental illness would be. And if we think about someone being so much kinder and, and, and better than other people, man, it's as if they had a God within them. No wonder we, picture, we think of the Spirit of God within us making us more than we otherwise would be. Well, if that's a divine spirit within us, the breath of life breathed in, then acting like this, that, they must be full of demons themselves. This is a different spirit that is possessing them. This must be the spirit of the devil. And there's nothing we can do to help them. Does, am I saying there's no such thing as, as demonic possession? No. And I cannot psychoanalyze this, this poor patient. I can't de determine, based on what we have in the text, what is literal demoniac versus what would literally be mental illness. But man, those two look a lot alike, anciently as well as in modern times. So give whatever diagnosis you choose, but what will the grand physician do when he comes? Watch the story unfold. Mark 5, verse 6 through 8. When he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? So there's still that. He says, I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. So there's still this opposition, this adversary. But there's also something within this man that causes him to run and worship Oh, to see light and darkness at war with one another within the soul of this one man. To want to run toward Jesus and at the same time want to run away. To want to fall down and worship and at the same time want to rise up and rebel. In some ways we're all two men or two women instead of one with the spiritual and the natural fighting within. And which will win? Will we come and worship or want to run away and fight? Jesus wants to weigh in on that question. And so he says to him, come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. Get out. You do not belong here. Free him. And yes, do it now, not later. I torment? You've been tormenting him this whole time, so now I'll torment you before that time and get out. And he does. I do have to pause, though, to reflect on the way that the, the demon says it. What have I to do with thee? Now, obviously, he's talking about, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You shouldn't have anything to do with me, at least not yet. So you stay in your world and I'll stay in mine. You light of the world, stay in the light. And let me dwell in the darkness. Oh no, the light shineth into the darkness, even if the darkness comprehendeth it not. Will you see here? Well, what the devil doesn't see is in answer to his question, what have I to do with thee? Jesus could say, everything. Because all that this man and everyone else goes through, it's the reason I came, it's the reason I condescended. Light was made to dispel darkness. So get out. 
it reminds me of an experience a friend of mine had that was going through something really hard. And sadly, this came from a fellow church member that didn't seem to understand the power of Christ. Because as this person was going through something really, really difficult, I'm not going to get into the details, but he was turning to the Lord for help and basically saying that this is what, the, what Christ came for. This is what the atonement is for, to help me in just these kinds of situations. And this quote-unquote friend who should have known better Adding insult to injury, said to this friend of mine, the atonement? The atonement has nothing to do with this. And I was shocked to hear a Latter-day Saint say anything along those lines. The atonement has nothing to do with this? It can't forgive your sins? It can't heal your marriage? It can't change everything? What do you mean it has nothing to do with this? And that's what I think when I hear that that demon say, what have I to do with thee? Picture any of your problems speaking up and saying to you, I have nothing to do with Jesus, and Jesus has nothing to do with me. He can't get you out of this situation. His, his mercy is not this far-reaching. His day of miracles has come and gone. And the specific circumstance you find yourself in has nothing to do with the Lord. That is a straight-out lie from the father of lies himself. But don't be surprised when he keeps on asking, what does this have to do with him at all? Everything. And so Jesus is telling him, come out. And then in Mark 5, 9, and 10, he asked him, what is thy name? Interesting detail only Mark gives us. And he answered, saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now we're going to see exactly where Jesus sends them away in a moment. You are probably already know the rest of this story. But pause here. Here's this, these demons beseeching Jesus. Well, it's not your request he's going to, ought to honor. There's someone else that's been beseeching my help a lot longer and a lot deeper and that deserves it more. So no, you come out. But what's your name again? Sure, Jesus knows. Uh, I, yeah, I recognize you from pre-mortality also. I cast you out once, I'm going to do it again here. But interesting, he'd ask the question, what is thy name? And the name? Legion. In terms of an innumerable multitude of maladies. How many problems are you facing? Uh, more than I can name. <laughs> Forgive the story, but we had a, van, a minivan we named Legion. That was the, its nickname. It had been a great van for a long time, but it got to a point where it started to multiply its problems to the point we couldn't keep up with them all. We, no mechanic seemed to be able to diagnose them all, and thus we named the, the minivan Legion. We found out later that there had been something wrong with the, like the central processing computer or whatever it was, and it, we would be driving along, and all of a sudden the windshield wipers would start going, although we didn't touch a thing. We're like, huh? What's going on? The worst was when the horn would go on without us touching anything. Because you'd be like stopped at a red light and then all of a sudden the horn would turn on. It was just like blaring. And the poor person in front of us was like looking in his rearview mirror, turning back going, the light's red, I can't go. And then we'd be looking like, huh, I can't turn it off because I didn't turn it on. It was the absolute worst. There would be times that you'd pull over 
because the windshield wipers were going and the horn, the horn was blaring. And you, the only thing I knew how to do was like turn the thing off. And I would pull over, I would turn off, I put it in a park, I'd turn off the ignition. And it, the ignition wouldn't turn off. I would pull out the key and the car was still running. And I'm like, ah, it's possessed. And thus we called it Legion. I was glad we could finally cast out that car and replace it with something slightly better. But to think about the realities of the legions of difficulties we sometimes face. If, this, if the name of this to you doesn't seem appropriate at all, then congratulations on having a relatively easy life. But brace yourself because there may be legions around the corner. That was me for much of my life. And legion has caught up. Okay, my patriarchal listen said it would be that way. I told my wife that you're marrying a ticking time bomb, and some of those explosions have come in the in the interim, to the point that there are times where I can't even name all my problems. The list is too long. It's just legion. But I love the fact that the Lord wants wants us to try to name them. Wants us to help us understand each identity. And what it is that we're going through. You know, there's something powerful about being able to name something. And this goes back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve are naming the animals to establish dominion over them. There's something amazing about feeling like you, you know the animal kingdom if you can name the animals. Little kids get so excited about that. Or walking on a nature hike and be able to name the trees. There's almost a sense of ownership. Like, I got this. That's especially true when it comes to diseases. My brother's a doctor, but I'm not. And it's so frustrating to face my own ignorance all the time. And I don't know what's wrong with my child. And therefore, I don't know how to help them. I joke with my brother that he's how I avoid all kinds of co-pays. As I call him and just say, this is what's going on. This is the situation. Any ideas? And his ideas are way better than mine. And especially when he or some other medical professional can name something, it makes all the difference. Because now that we have a diagnosis, next I can work on a prescription. I, I wonder, can we do a little bit more to seek names for the things that we're wrestling with? And instead of just struggling with some kind of nebulous doubt, What's your specific question? What do you want to ask the Lord? How would you phrase it? How do you expect him to answer? Let's get much more specific. Uh, the, the kinds of difficult... I'll, I'll even put it this way. When some of my own children have struggled and suffered with things, getting a clear diagnosis, finally, has made a huge difference, not only in terms of being able to help them, but being more patient with them through what they're suffering. And instead of just saying, oh, this, this, is the, this child is just disobedient, it's like, no, this child is struggling with some things that I haven't had to struggle with. And some of these legions have names like anxiety and like depression and, and other kinds of mental illnesses and physical maladies, and it makes it so much easier for me to cut them some slack because I understand a little better what they're going through. There have even been times where I have pled with the Lord, I hope you know my diagnosis. I have one devil called the natural man. I'm working on it. I'm trying to overcome. I'm taking my medicine daily. But be 
please be patient with my imperfection. And he is. So name your sins. Get a little more control over them by that. Seek diagnoses so you can find better prescriptions. And turn it over to the Lord, because what does he do? He can cast out those problems. He knows them all by name. And as we saw at the end of that passage, that this legion beseeches him, don't send us away. Oh no, I'm sending you away. Well, they come up with another idea. Famously, in verse 30 through 32, there was a good way off from them and heard of many swine feeding. So the devils besought him, saying, if thou cast us out, and you didn't have to say if, you know what's coming. If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. Please, please, pretty please. We have no body. We are disembodied spirits. We were cast out from premortality. And if there's one thing an unembodied spirit wants, it's to have a body. Any body at all. So to possess this poor man, fine, cast me out of that. And can I at least have a pig body? I'll take anything I can get. Well, the Lord said unto them, one word of command. That's all he needed. Go. Just go. Get out. I don't care where you go in some ways, as long as it's out of him. Well, when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. And behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. In the Mark account, it says there were about 2,000. That's not a full Roman legion, but plenty to constitute a demonic one. 2,000. And they were choked in the sea. No more chance to protest and ask Jesus for second chances. Now, what I find so interesting here about the, the swine part of the story, no self-respecting Jew would be a swine herd. That's kind of where you get the sense of the prodigal son hitting absolute rock bottom because he's among the pigs. Unclean animal as far as Judaism is concerned. Not kosher, totally unclean. Well, what a perfect final resting place for the unclean spirits. Well, to go into an unclean body. Uh, in some ways, this is the dead burying the dead, as we saw from that, that would-be disciple. This is the site of death. This is the site of uncleanness and being cast out. This is what Jesus has been doing to them all along. To cast them out of premortality, to cast them out of the man into the swine, and then the swine do what? They run headlong downhill into the sea. The sea, the lowest point. See, the place of chaos personified or symbolized. Let's recreate and let's have the breath of life, the wind blowing across the waters, bringing light out of darkness and, and land out of the sea. It's amazing the symbolism here. Again, we all start, it all started back with death in the tombs. No man can pass. Pluck asunder the, the chains and the fetters. Jesus is in, is in control of it all. I love that typically juxtaposed are those two stories. Calm the stormy sea and calm the stormy soul. Jesus is a master of both. But thankfully, the story doesn't just end with that healing. Go back to Matthew 8, look at 33 and 34. And they that kept them, the pigs that is, they fled and went their ways into the city 
and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. And how could they not? There's no keeping this messianic secret. Can you, can you know what happened out on the cliffside? Do you understand what happened to this man that we've all feared for so long? Well, behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. Of course, they're going to want to know, how is this possible? Who did this mighty deed? Well, it's not just Jesus that they're going to see when they get out there. In the Mark account, they see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion. And what do they see him doing? Sitting. Instead of running around, breaking chains, he's sitting calmly, peacefully. He's clothed. In the Luke account, I forgot to mention this earlier, in the Luke account, it says that he wore no clothing. He can p- picture him, again, this, this madman running around, uncovered. Think of that symbolism. We saw so much symbolism in the chains and the tombs and everything. Well, imagine not being clothed, not being covered by the atonement of Christ. There's a pretty good description of a devil within you. And so no clothing. But now he is clothed. He's covered with the Lord's own robes of righteousness. Mark adds, he's in his right mind. His right mind. True understanding with truth personified sitting right in front of them. He's, everything's okay. And then it says in Mark that the people who came rushing to see it, once they saw it all, they were afraid. Afraid? Afraid of what? Afraid in the good way, awe, reverence, afraid of their own unworthiness. Just the gift of God has come. God himself must be among us. What would they have thought? These would have been Gentiles, by the way. If they're taking care of swine, Jews have no need of that. So these outsiders, who has come out to be among us. Who's come out to our wilderness? That's another detail that Luke gives us, where it says of this man, Legion, that the devil had driven him into the wilderness. You can picture Jesus saying, oh, I I know what it's like to meet the devil in the wilderness. And I know what it's like to overcome him. So let me show you the way. Well, all these multitudes come out to see, to, to hopefully to worship, to honor, But no, what was their fear all about? Back to the Matthew account. When they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coasts. Mark says the same thing. They began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. Seriously? Just leave? We don't want you or your kind around here. What, you'd rather have legion? Take your pick. Well, no, we don't want legion, but we do want our herds. And we just lost 2,000 head. Economically, today's been devastating. Is that all you can think about? You care more about your herds than about this fellow human? You care more about your property than this person Swine over souls? Are you serious? And yet that's what they were focused on. And that's tragic. What do we stand to lose when we follow Jesus? Uh, Financially, economically, maybe you can list a few things. But what do you stand to gain? 
Don't put your treasure on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal, where pigs run headlong down the steep cliff into the sea below. There's so many ways you can lose <laughs> what you thought mattered when it doesn't. But to come into Christ, to know his will, to honor it, to accept that what he's casting out was just the legion that was keeping you from him all along. Well, Jesus is about to leave at their request. They're about to shuffle their way back to their homes. But before the story ends, you get one last scene of the about-to-depart Jesus with this newly healed man. Don't know his name. It's certainly not legion anymore. But you're in your right mind, you're sitting calmly, you're clothed through the atonement of Christ. What's your next plan? You didn't have much of a plan back in your legion days. So notice what happens next. Mark chapter 5, we only get this part of the account here. Verse 18 and 19, And when he was come into the ship, Jesus is going back to the Sea of Galilee to continue his journey, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Remember, the people had just prayed him to leave. Well, now this man, healed man, is praying that he might be able to stay. Howbeit, Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. So this is the opposite of the messianic secret. And sure enough, this man takes that invitation seriously. And in verse 20, he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. And how could they not? How could they not marvel? Because the most amazing news they've ever heard is that being sounded in their ears. That someone possessed of a legion of devils is now possessed with such a strong conviction that the Christ has come among them. That someone that can put us all in our right mind and clothe us all in the robes of righteousness, we can sit down with him. No matter what our past life has been like, believe me, I know, I'm exhibit A. It's so fitting that this first missionary to the Decapolis is an old demoniac. Decapolis, deca means ten, polis means city. And so these ten cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee Gentile cities, Hellenized Jews, or outsiders, just, can I come in? Yes. Trust me, you can come in. The kingdom of God is open to us all. So come out of your tombs and seek the life of the world. His light is shining in our darkness. He is some, in, in some ways the equivalent of the Samaritan woman at the well. Perfect first missionary to the Samaritan village that she was from. She goes out and finds them and brings them out to see Christ, come and see, and they want him to come and stay, which he does. I can only hope that his audience would be as open-minded and as welcoming to the Savior as he's been to this man. There's something else here, though, as far as what the Savior said to him first. Before he goes off to begin publishing these mar these, this marvelous news to the people of the Decapolis, what Jesus had said to him was far more personal 
than just that. Not just go be a missionary to everyone. I mean, you've, you've got plenty of time on your hands now. You had nothing to do. You had no life before, so you might as well use your life now to spread the gospel. It's like, no, you had a life before. Before all of this happened, and I want to restore that life to you as well. Did you catch what he said when the man first said, can I come with you? Because you get a sense from that, I've got nothing here. I'm the person everyone was afraid of. I've, not only did I break chains and, bond, and, and burst bonds, but I broke relationships and I've got nothing left here. You're the only person that's been able to tame me. So can I please stay with you? And Jesus says, no. And not just to go send him on a mission. No, there's something he said first. Did you catch it? He said, go home to thy friends. And if there were two words that I imagine had been lost from this man's vocabulary, it was home and friends. I have no home. That's why I live among the tombs. I have no friends. Only people that fear me. The closest they ever come is when they've come and forged new chains and fetters to bind me with. No man can pass by. No one wants to pass through. I have nothing. You're all I have, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, basically, no. You have more than you realize. You have a home. And friends there waiting to welcome you back. Friends that have been as in chain, have been as paralyzed as you. Chained up by their fears. There's, it's so hard when you have someone that you love, a friend or family member that is suffering so deeply with mental illness or other kinds of challenges that you are powerless to help change. You feel like you've lost a friend or a family member. And for Jesus to say, no, you still have people that care for you that have felt powerless to do anything in your behalf, but have been wanting to help and wishing they could help and worrying that no one would be able to. Well, I'm able to, and I did. So go home to them. They'll be waiting for you. To tell the homeless they still have a home, to tell the friendless they still have friends. I'm amazed that with every miracle Jesus performs, it's... In this case, there is a physical healing and a mental and emotional healing. There's a spiritual healing in all of these as well. But in this case, there is a social healing. This is touching the untouchable leper. This is taking a centurion and spinning him around so that the Jews can look on and see someone that Jesus loves and wants them to love too. This is restoring legion not only to his right mind, but to a circle of friends that wants to welcome him home. And can we be part of that circle that's welcoming repentant sinners? People that have been healed and helped by Jesus. And when we do, <laughs> what do we know of him as a result? One last thing to say before we shift to a few more miracles. When he said, go home to thy friends, he told, them to, he told him to share two things. Number one, tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee. Tell them the what's. Explain to them the hand of God in their life. But number two, 
and hath had compassion on thee. Tell them the why. Tell them the... I mean, don't just explain the outward act of God's hand in your life. Explain to them the inner attribute that motivated that act. Not just this is what God did, but this is what God is like. Because since he's like that, and he was that like that to me, he'll be like that to you. A God of compassion. Even to me. He's a God of compassion to you. I wonder if in fast and testimony meeting, in the midst of all of our testimonies of what God has done in our lives, can we do more to testify of what God is like by way of his perfect attributes? We are seeing these attributes play out in each of these glorious miracles, and each of them in their own way are introducing us to a Christ of incredible compassion. Christ's compassion is not limited to the, what, five miracles we've studied so far? But the three that we're about to see here, and there's even a fourth that I'm going to sneak in, yeah, if you'll let me. To see what Jesus is going to do from here as he's left the Gergesenes and their swine, gotten back into the boat, coming back into Israelite territory, he returns to, Caper to Capernaum, home base, uh, base of operations there. And notice what he, what he says here. We could see this story in Matthew chapter 9, but we're going to look at it in Mark chapter 2 instead. It's a little more fuller account, but we'll get some help from other writers. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Again, he entered into Capernaum after some days. And it was noised that he was in the house. Noised abroad, according to the JST. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. Sound like Jesus? Everywhere he went, a multitude follows. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing. Well, all of that's about to happen here. Here, initially, he's preaching the word. And the multitudes are gathering. They want to learn more. Now, in the Luke version of this, this is chapter 5, verse 17, it says that as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, so more evidence of Christ's spreading popularity. But then this detail. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Now we're going to see in a moment that not everyone had come with righteous motives. I'm sure some of these Pharisees and doctors of the law were trying to make him an, uh, an offender for a word. Trying to see how's he going to break the law of Moses according to our interpretation. Uh, this week. But there would be others that had come out of every town. Of Galilee, there's the north. Of Judea, there's the south. From Jerusalem, they've come quite a ways. Is there news starting to trickle through the Decapolis and people wanting to follow from there? Oh, these are people far and wide that are coming to hear Jesus. And initially, it's to hear them. He's preaching the word. And remember, faith precedes the miracle. And as they come with faith, having been prepared to hear the Lord's message... They're now also prepared to receive the Lord's miracles because faith has preceded it. The power of the Lord is present to heal them. So, sure enough, verse 3 through 5, They come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy. Now, palsy, that's some form of paralysis. So this man cannot walk. He cannot come unto Christ on his own. He needs additional help. And who's he going to get the help from? From friends who are bringing him to Christ. 
and coming unto Christ themselves in the process. This might be a chicken and egg kind of thing. Which comes first, us coming or us bringing? Are we coming and we're bringing others with him? Or in our efforts to bring others to Christ, we can't help but come unto him ourselves? Oh, start either way, <laughs> but end with both. We need to come unto Christ, but we need to bring other people with us. Now, some people are hard to be brought. Some people will, there's no way they're going to come on their own. So, and some of them don't even want to be brought. So how are we going to go about doing that? I love the creativity that Luke mentions in his account of this story. Luke 5.18 says, they sought means to bring him in. How are we going to get him there? Hmm. Now there's is a, a literal logistical problem. Us, it might be more spiritual. How can I help this person come unto Christ? Let's seek means to do it. Now for them, they were trying to figure out how are we going to lay him before him, lay our friend before Jesus. Now, when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, so there's no, the, the normal ways are not going to work. It's been closed up by, by so many crowds, we can't do it. So what are we going to do? We're seeking means. We can't find a way. Well, get creative. Start looking for other approaches, other ways that we can do the work of the Lord. Missionary department had to do that as a whole through COVID when the normal means were not available to us. Well, Get creative, and they did. They went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling. Other accounts speak of them digging through the roof. <laughs> was this terracotta tiles? Was this kind of mud bricks? Was, what, what, what was it? I don't know. But it didn't matter. It's got to go. If it's keeping them from Jesus, it's got to go. So they let him down through the tiling. Back in the Mark version, it says, When they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, so breaking, this doesn't just seem like, okay, we'll move something, then we'll move it back. Like, no, this is broken. This is, well, desperate times call for desperate measures. And there's no other way to get in, so we're going to have to do this. We'll be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. How's that? Well, once the roof is broken up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. And now, problem solved. <laughs> they have, he, this man is lying right before Jesus. Oh, I do love that they're willing to eliminate whatever it is that's keeping them from Christ. What is it for us? If it's a roof, tear off the tiles. Dig through it. Break it up. Even if it leaves a bit of a mess, it's a mess we're in if we're not with Jesus. So, so dig through. Do, do your best. And then Jesus' response is amazing. When Jesus saw their faith, Wait, he saw their faith? No, he saw their works, right? Well, yeah, but their works were motivated by their faith. It's works that make faith visible. And are our works sufficient to help the Lord see that we have faith behind those acts? In their case, that's, well, that was the case. Jesus saw their faith. And so he says to the sick of the palsy, son. Later we'll see Jesus healing a woman and he calls her daughter. I love the family feel here. Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. In fact, in Matthew's account, it's, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. The JST of that then adds, go thy way and sin no more. So, hmm, there's something about this story that, that is more about sin than about suffering. With the JST help, there was, he, this man was not perfectly worthy. Some things had happened uh, to the point that the Lord is admonishing him, don't do those things again. 
go and sin no more. He'll say the same thing to the woman taken in adultery. But in this case, there's forgiveness, which must have been preceded by faith. Faith, if you can just bring me to Jesus, I'll be okay. But there's the irony. What did you mean by okay? The fact that he is a paralytic, that he's with the palsy, that he can't come on his own, that his friends have to bear him and then lower him down on his bed to go see Jesus. This is physical healing he's after. So part of me smiles when, I mean, if I was one of the friends and I, I, this is your only hope, this is your chance, you can be healed through Jesus. You'll be able to walk again. And we bring you, lower you down, Jesus smiles and says, son, be of good cheer. And you're just waiting for the next line. Take up thy bed and walk. And instead, he says, thy sins are forgiven thee. And there have been some sinful things. So go and sin no more. Can we stop that? But for now, you're clean. And I just picture myself thinking, um, that's not why we brought him. <laughs> okay? There's a much more obvious problem here. Uh, could you give us a little help with that? Now, we're about to see that Jesus will do exactly that. But the fact that's not where he begins should tell us something. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and everything else will be added unto you. Seek to be clean. Seek to be healed spiritually first. The, healing, the physical healing can then come. Then again, if it doesn't come, you got the one that mattered most. We'll talk about that again in just a moment. But notice what is going on in the background. Because there's a multitude, and we saw already that it's made up of not just disciples, but also Pharisees and doctors of the law that may be looking for a, an angle to take down Jesus. Well, they, th they seem to have just found one. It was delivered on a, on a silver platter, or in this case, it was lowered down on a bed. In Mark 2, verse 6 through 8, there were certain of the scribes sitting there those would be among the doctors of the law. They know what's written down. Every jot and tittle. I want to make sure nothing is destroyed. Well, certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. There's no lips moving here. Just there is, Something's going on inside. They're reasoning. The Matthew version says they said within themselves. So no, no, no spoken complaints. But boy, they're thinking. And this is what they're thinking. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? In Luke, they ask themselves, who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Now, either way, the issue is blasphemy. On one, it's, why is he doing this? In the other, it's, who does this guy think he is? And that's really the question that they're getting to. Who can forgive sins but God only? Now, that's a good question. But the answer lies before them. This is God's own son forgiving sin. Well, immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, so they haven't said anything, they were talking in their hearts, they were reasoning there, but Jesus doesn't have to use his ears to hear their mouth. This is heart to heart and spirit to spirit, and he perceives it. He perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves. So he says to them, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Or in Matthew's account, wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? It's not just that you're wondering, it's that you've already passed judgment. You consider this blasphemous. You think what I've done is evil. Because you don't know. You know that God, uh, you know that God forgives sin. 
but you don't know who I am and the authority I have to do just that. I wonder sometimes how we respond when a mere mortal, someone we know is not God, lets us know that we've been forgiven. If we've gone and seen our priest with the, bird, <laughs> with the birds in the birdcage, ready to apply the scarlet and hyssop and cedar, if our bishop tells us, you're clean, you've repented, you've confessed and forsaken, and it's okay. Leave these things in your past. They are behind you, and they, they do not let them hold your future hostage. When a bishop says to us, son or daughter, be of good cheer, go in peace, thy sins are forgiven thee, go and sin no more, please. But if you do, I'm still here. You can come back. Do we sometimes reason in our hearts that it can't be that e it can't possibly be that easy? He can't possibly know because th these are for people who have such a hard time forgiving themselves. And that even though a judge in Israel is not passing negative judgment on you, is actually passing positive judgment, and the verdict is now, you were guilty, you are now innocent. And scarlet sin is now white as snow, so move forward. And some of us have such a hard time accepting that and moving on. No, can't be. In fact, it would be blasphemous of me to accept the words of a mere mortal that isn't God telling me that I'm clean. Well, A, you can go to God and get the same message. Where do you think the bishop got it? But B, you can also trust in the bishop's authority to be able to say on God's behalf, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And it's not blasphemy for me to say it. It's not ingratitude for you to accept it. In fact, it's gratitude to let it come. And let the Lord heal you. Well, the Lord then says an interesting thing, poses an interesting question. It may have been rhetorical, but I actually want us to answer it, or at least wrestle with it. Verse 9, whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk? So that's the question. Which is easier to say? There's a JST of this that, that reiterates it. Does it require more power to forgive sins than to make the sick rise up and walk? Now, again, maybe it's just rhetorical, but think hard. Which would you say is more difficult? Which is harder to do? To forgive sin or to heal the lame? Now, we might think, well, to forgive sin because it's going to cost Jesus his life. The awful arithmetic of the atonement is higher order mathematics. It's hard to do. It's infinite and eternal, and no one can do it by, but Christ himself. So surely, that's the hardest thing he could possibly do. Well, I see what you're saying, and I agree with that. However, I think what Jesus is hinting at with his immediate audience that doesn't understand the atonement yet, which is it easier to say? Okay, Is it easier to say, oh, you're healed, it's fine, it's all good? Or is it easier to say, take up your bed and walk? Because if you think about it, if all of this is just words anyway, uh, one of these is, takes a lot more guts to say because it's immediately falsifiable. You can, in other words, you can prove me, or disprovable, I should say, you can prove me wrong. 
If I just say your sins are forgiven, you can't prove that didn't happen. You can't like see sins lift and you can't see garments cleansed. It's just, I don't know. Did that work? I mean, I can say it to you right now. I mean, all of you out there, just blanket amnesty. Forgiveness for you, forgiveness for you, forgiveness for you. You're all clean. Be a good cheer. What are you going to say about that? Then again, if this man is visibly paralyzed, and that's obvious. I've got, I've got roof rafters exposed as, as proof. Ask any of his friends that have paid the price physically to lower him down through this, bring him, carry him all this way. This man is obviously paralyzed. For me to say to him, take up thy bed and walk, that's a scary thing to say. Because he'll know if it doesn't work, and you'll know that too. But, he says in the next verse, 10 through 12, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. Now, how's this for drama? He's called them out. They're the ones that are wondering, oh, who can even say this? Only God could do that. Oh yeah, well, only God can heal the sick too. And that's one that nobody's going to have the guts to say, because if it doesn't work, everyone will know that I'm blaspheming and claiming authority and power that isn't my own. But if we're under the impression that physical healing is harder than spiritual healing, fine. Let me say them both. And I will do the hard one in order to prove to you that I have the authority to do the so-called easy one. So, son... Friend, take up your bed and walk. And he does. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all. Luke's account says, glorifying God. And of course he would be. I can now walk? Now, it wasn't just him glorifying God. Go back to Mark's account. Insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God. Think back to Matthew chapter 5. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Well, that's what's happening here. They've just seen the most glorious work imaginable and they are glorifying their Father in heaven as a result. In fact, they say, we never saw it on this fashion. <laughs> this is unheard of, unseen, unimaginable. The JST of that, we never saw the power of God after this manner. You see, God's getting the glory, but it must be God among us. This is Emmanuel, God with us, performing these godly works. In the Matthew account, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men, namely the Son of Man himself, Jesus Christ. Or Luke's account, and they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, but fear of the right kind saying, we have seen strange things today. Yeah, you think? And with that language, I can't help but think of Isaiah's prophecy that God would perform a strange work and bring to pass a strange act. Well, it's only strange by mortal standards because these things just don't happen every day. Well, where's our faith?
they can. And to have that level of trust and that level of faith and that level of awe, that's worship. And Jesus deserves it, as does our Father which art in heaven. Hallowed be his name. Before we go on to the next miracle, though, uh, I want to say one thing about what, what's just happened and what Jesus is suggesting by that interesting question. I know as far as Jesus is concerned, what, will, what it will require of him to perform the atonement will be the hardest thing he's ever done. But which is it easier to say? I love the thought of spiritual healing being even easier for Jesus than physical healing. Of it coming more naturally to him once he's condescended to to feel what we've gone through, to understand how weak the human flesh can be. And that word made flesh himself has come down, condescended to understand those things. And of course, he wants to forgive us. He wants to help us. He wants to heal us physically as well as spiritually. But if you could only choose one, which would it be? In this man's case, he got both statements. Both be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven thee, and take up thy bed and walk. He was healed spiritually as well as physically. But if you could only pick one. The irony is that they came expecting the physical, hoping for the physical. That's what we came to receive. But the first thing the Lord gave them, gave him, was the spiritual healing. And then the physical followed. You see, this means a lot to me because the first year I ever got to teach the New Testament in seminary, I happened to have two children, two students, I should say, in wheelchairs in, in my classes. Brandon and Cindy. And they had hearts of gold. Hearts that worked better than the rest of ours, though they had legs that worked worse. And they'd spent their lifetimes in wheelchairs. But full of light and optimism and hope, they would wheel their way into class every day, and we had an amazing experience studying the Gospels together. But I remember the day I was teaching them these miracles. And especially this man with the palsy who was lowered through the roof. And for the first time in my life, I wondered, how, how does Cindy read these? And how does Brandon feel when he studies these stories? Is there a sense on their part of, I wish I would have lived in those days. I wish that Jesus would say to me, take up thy wheelchair and walk. I'd love to go to prom or the school dance and actually be able to dance instead of just move back and forth with my motorized wheelchair. I think of another friend of mine, Jenny is her name, who climbed the Y, hiked the Y with her BYU ward because they carried her the whole way since she has also been confined to a wheelchair throughout her life. Talk about being born, <laughs> more, by more than four, by the way. It would have been easier to lower through a roof rather than climb up a mountain. But they carried her up so she could be a part of things. That's friendship for you. But again, whether it's Cindy or Brandon or Jenny or so many others, Jill, people that I look up to, that I admire, that I honor in their willingness to accept the Lord's will, whatever it might be, but does it ever cross their mind? 
Why can't he say to me, take up my bed and walk? Well, what struck me then and continues to strike me now is that of the two, first of all, yes, he can still say that. And that it is still a day of miracles. But it's also a day that seems to need more help establishing spiritual strength than the physical. And of those two glorious statements, if you could only pick one, which would it be? If it were me? And easy for me to say, I'll admit it, since I don't suffer the same kind of physical things that so many of my friends and others have. But if it were me and I could only pick one, it would be the spiritual healing I'd take every time. I will stay on this bed for the rest of my life if you'll just make me clean. Because then I'll come home and soar like the birds of the air that you always provide for. That helped me as I pondered Cindy's situation and Brandon's, Brandon's challenge and Jenny's and Jill's and everyone else out there that's suffering through hard, hard things where physical healing has not yet come. And don't limit yourself just to those that cannot walk. It can be physical health, illness, mental illness, emotional challenges, you name it. But please know, rest assured that God can say to you and longs to, wants to, is waiting to, be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven thee. That comes more easily to him. It rolls off his tongue. He just wants to let us know that we're okay. So let him tell you that. That's what allows us to make sense of the next miracle that is included here. Because it's one that gets skipped over. As if it weren't one. As if it weren't a miracle. But it is Jesus saying to someone, you can come because you're clean. This is Mark chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. As Jesus went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, he taught them, as he always did. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. And it was the custom for those in that seat, yes, to give receipts for all the taxes and tolls that they were exacting from the people. In fact, exacting from their people. This guy's name is Levi? That's a Jewish name. House of Israel. And yet, he's working for the Romans? Taking our money to pay them? Oh, this is this. Speaking of lowest of the low, here's a, here's a social leper. Here's a worse the, than the centurion. Here's a publican by choice. Mother-in-law, oh, I'll take a, a, a legion of mothers-in-law as opposed to one Levi sitting there in his little booth working for the IRS, the Israelite Revenue Service, that nobody has a good word for. Well, Jesus has a word for him. He said unto him, follow me. And without so much as packing up his abacus, <laughs> this publican arose and followed him. Now that's all we get there from the Mark version of this story. Two little verses. We get two verses also in the Luke account, very similar. After these things he went forth and saw a publican. Now he's spelling it out for you as Luke would need to. This is someone who's going to work for Rome. This is a publican. His name is Levi. He's sitting at the receipt of custom. 
And Jesus says to him, follow me. And he left all, rose up and followed him. I'm grateful Luke recorded that additional detail. He left all. Sound a little like the fishermen leaving their nets? In some ways, this might even be a greater sacrifice, considering this is, I mean, publicans are going to make more money than fishermen are likely to. But he left it all. He gave it up. And maybe that greater sacrifice to the one who gave it is also evidence of a greater miracle, because that's what he considered this to be. Because who is this Levi, son of Alphaeus? Only in the Matthew account is a different name given. And Matthew writes in chapter 9, verse 9, As Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. The man that Mark and Luke refer to as Levi referred to himself as Matthew. Why the discrepancy of names? I don't know. Was it one name that his parents had given him and a different name that he gave himself after the fact? I don't know. But the name means gift of God. Matthew comes from a Hebrew name, Matiyahu. And that's what it means, gift of God. And that's why I wonder if Matthew gave himself that name after he was called. And to leave the Levi behind. Because he saw himself not as a gift of God, but his calling as a gift from God to him. In fact, more than a gift, he considered it a miracle. Because that's where he included this. You remember Matthew's less concerned about chronology because he wants to organize things by theme and the theme in chapter 8 and chapter 9 is miracles. And the fact that Jesus can heal a leper and heal a centurion's servant and heal a mother, Peter's mother-in-law, that he can calm a storm and calm a soul, that he can raise the lame man to a walking position. And what else can he do? He can call even me. From my tax collector's seat to come follow him. I love the inclusion of this among the miracles because for Matthew himself, it was a miracle as breathtaking and, and awe-inspiring as anything else that he would chronicle in these two chapters. That Jesus would condescend to call even me. To any Matthews out there that consider your calling a gift from God. Yes, it's a miracle that he would be willing to work through us. Thank you, Matthew, for your placement of that story, that personal experience. We then get back to some other stories, but this one actually grows out of Matthew's because it has to do with something that took place at his house. This is back in Mark chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. It came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house. Now, whose house is this? It's Matthew's house. Luke makes that clear. It says that Levi made him a great feast in his own house. This is going to become uh, a gathering place there in, in Capernaum. Well, who was gathering? Many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. 
So this is where we start to get this sense of who's Jesus usually hanging out with. Uh, not only does he call one publican to be among his 12 apostles, but publicans, many of them, and many other sinners, now those would have been synonymous in many a Jewish mind, uh, they are coming to be with Jesus as well. They want to follow. Now this is starting to turn heads. The kinds of people that are following this Jesus of Nazareth. It's not just the quantity of the crowds, it's the quality of them as well, or lack thereof. So, when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? You can just hear the disgust dripping off their lips. Uh, in the Matthew version, they ask it this way, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? Who on earth would do this? Why would anyone? How is it even possible? I mean, it's just contamination on contact. Well, not if you're immune from those kinds of contaminants. Not if you're the one who is contagious with your virtue. Not them with their vice. Let them come. But this is on the mind of who? Every scribe and every Pharisee that's there. The so-called guardians of the law. This person certainly couldn't be the Messiah. It's, he hangs out with people that are infinitely beneath him. Shouldn't he be hanging out with us instead? Well, Jesus overhears this. And in verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he, said, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And with a twinkle in his eye, he could have winked at them and said, including you who don't think you belong to that group. You listed publicans and sinners. Well, that second group encompasses all of you, including you scribes and Pharisees. In the Matthew version of this, he says, he adds to that and quotes the scripture. Since Matthew's audience is going to be very focused on scripture, including Pharisees and scribes who know all of these scriptures word for word. Jesus says in Matthew 9.13, But go ye and learn what that meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So beyond an excellent analogy, that who needs doctors? The sick, not the whole. Jesus adds a scripture that to his immediate audience would have been very well known as well. He's quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And in it, the Lord specifies, lays it out very clearly. If I had to prioritize mercy or sacrifice, I'll take mercy, thank you very much. If it's inner attribute versus outward action, let's go with the inner attribute. Then the outer action will come. <laughs> but the external devoid of the internal does nobody any good. That's tinkling cymbals and sounding brass. That's a bag with holes. That, that's going through the motions and getting nothing out of it. So, you scribes and Pharisees, how well do you know your scriptures? Because the way he puts it, why don't you, why don't you go? Go ye. Get out of here. You're, you think you're whole, which means you think you don't need the physician. Then why are you taking up space in the doctor's office? Why are you making it hard for, I mean, if it weren't for you, maybe they wouldn't have to tear off roof tiles and lower people down. It's these curious onlookers instead of honest seekers after truth that are getting in the way of people that actually would come sincerely instead of just rubbernecking, trying to get an eye on the next miracle. No, go ye and learn what that meaneth. Learn what it means. You know the scripture. 
I can just drop the subtle hint about mercy and sacrifice and your minds will immediately go to Hosea 6 verse 6. But do you know what it means? Or do you just regurgitate scripture without any of the nutrients actually being digested? Man, you draw near me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. So go back to your precious scriptures and figure out what they really say. Let's start walking the walk instead of just talking the talk. Well, there's still more talking to be done. Verse 18, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. Well, they come and say unto Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? In the Matthew account, they came to him, the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? Uh, in the midst of all these miracle accounts, we do get a couple of interludes. And one of them was these disciples that want to come. It's like, well, you're going to be homeless like me. Or then make sure you prioritize life instead of death. It's going to be hard what, we're, <laughs> what you're signing up for. And here's another little interlude as he's hanging out with publicans and sinners. And people are whispering behind his back. And why would he do that? And I can't believe the kind of people that he associates with. He's, is he as sinful as they are? But part of this second interlude is also this question about, I thought the Messiah would be holier than what you, you are. You, Pharisees fast. Disciples of John the Baptist fast. I mean, John himself was a Nazarite. There's a high bar that he's clearing. And his disciples are trying to clear that raised bar as well. How come your, your people don't? How come the, the disciples of Jesus Christ aren't known for the kind of levels of spiritual living that you would expect of them? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Now, I hope the answer is not, well, out of hypocrisy. That better not be the case. God does high, hold us to a high standard. But in terms of our attitudes, because that's what they're getting at. It's not just the act of fasting. Think about what they saw before, what, what Jesus chided them about before, about, well, when you fast, is it just to be seen of men? Are you appearing unto man to fast? Uh, and so are you painting your faces with, with oh, signs of sorrow instead of joy? Because if that's the reason you're fasting, then there's really no purpose in your fasting anyway. And so I'm not asking my, my followers to do it that way. But I am asking them to fast. I said that in the Sermon on the Mount. It's just not, the, we're not going to do that all the time. That's not the only way to approach God. And if we need Him every hour in joy and pain, then we want to be with Christ in the feast and not just in the fast. And that seems to be what he's getting at here. In verse 19 and 20, Jesus responds, Can the children of the bride chamber fast? Matthew actually says mourn. And those would have been synonymous for anybody who got hungry that day, right? Fasting was a day of mourning, a day of contrition, a day of sorrow. In the Jewish festivals, that's when fast days typically occurred. It was, there were days of atonement. There were days of, of sorrowing for sin. And so, yes, they're mourning. But when Jesus says, can the children of the bride chamber fast or mourn while the bridegroom is with them? The answer to that rhetorical question is no. And then he explains it. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Because if the bridegroom's here, then it's marriage time. And it's marriage feast time. It's time to celebrate, not to sorrow. 
and I'm here. I'm right here. The bridegroom is present. The kingdom of God is among you. So come and rejoice. Come and enter in. Now he adds to this, But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. So don't, don't worry. They'll have plenty of opportunities for fast Sundays coming up. But right now, while I'm here, I want to share in their joy. And let them share in mine. So no time to fast today. In some ways, the difference between fasting and feasting is the presence of God. And if we've lost that presence, then no wonder we need to fast and to mourn and to come to God with broken hearts and contrite spirits. Godly sorrow every step of the way. Because I'm not with God, but I want to be. I've lost the presence and companionship of Christ. Can I come back? Is there a chance to return to the wedding? Will Hosea let Gomer return? Can we renew our vows? Will he forgive me of my covenant infidelity and remain married to me? Because if he will, then bring on the wedding. And with that reconciliation, with that atonement, the fasting's over and the feasting has begun because we're back with the bridegroom. Blessed are those that mourn, but they shall be comforted. And if the purpose of that mourning phase has been, has been met, if patience had her perfect work, if if we've mourned with those that mourn, and now we're ready to comfort those that stand in need of comfort. And in fact, the comfort has come, and now we're ready to rejoice with those that want to rejoice. Jesus wants to be there for that too. He wants to be along with, he wants to, he wants to walk the entire path with you. And so, don't think we're less than others. Not less than John's disciples. With their sincere Fasting, certainly not less than the Pharisees and their pseudo-fasting to be seen of man. No, Jesus knows what he's doing. But that's not the only question the Pharisees have for Jesus. The first one was basically, why aren't you as holy as we are? How come you don't fast as often as we do? The second one, notice this. This is the JST of Matthew 9, verse 16. Then said the Pharisees unto him, Why will ye not receive us with our baptism? I've seen we keep the whole law. But Jesus said unto them, Ye keep not the law. If ye had kept the law, ye would have received me, for I am he who gave the law. I receive not you with your baptism, because it profiteth nothing. For when that which is new is come, the old is ready to be put away. And he's going to talk about new and old with some other metaphors in just a moment. But this is a fascinating JST edition. The Pharisees' baptism... I mean, they talk about the baptism of John, there's the baptism of Jesus, which is authorized, which is not. I mean, ritual purification is an old, an old thing in Judaism. And so it's not that, that John came with some unheard of thing. It was, they were not, weren't questioning baptism, they were questioning authority later on. And now the Pharisees are wondering about their own baptism and why Jesus won't accept it. When we ritually purify people... Why isn't that good enough for you? When we seem to be better than you, we fast more often than you do. Well, yeah, to be seen of men. 
in this case, is what Jesus is saying is your outward actions are almost canceling themselves out. They don't count. You claim to keep the whole law. Well, in some ways, then, why should I count your baptism? You don't think your baptism needs to count. Because if you are so perfectly obedient and there's, you, don't need, you don't have any sins to be remitted, then what was the point of your baptism to begin with? No, you've got, you need a, believe me, you need a good baptism. Because you have plenty of need to bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. But since you haven't brought forth fruits, thinking you didn't need to repent, then what was the point of your baptism to begin with? You have not kept the law like you think you have, because you have not accepted the lawgiver. If you really knew the, the law, this goes back to like, do you really know the book of Hosea? I'm going to quote it, and you're going to know it, but you don't really know what it means. At least you don't act like it. Well, do you really know what the law is and what it's for? Because you're making me an offender over laws that I wrote. Because I'm the lawgiver. Go ask Moses. He'll recognize me from Sinai. I know you don't, though. Because I'm, I'm too new for you. And all you want is the old. Well, guess what? This is new and everlasting. It's the same covenant I've made since premortality. It's an everlasting covenant. But now in this dispensation of the meridian of times, it's going to look new to you because you've forgotten the purposes of the old. You've forgotten the lawgiver. So he says in verse 21 and 22, famous verses, No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, Else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. It's like you were trying to fix the piece of clothing, but by sewing something else in it, and when the old doesn't stretch in the same way as the new does, and pretty soon the tear is going to be worse than it was before. The way he puts it in the Luke account, both the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. So it's not just that it might rip more, they don't even match anymore. I mean, the degree of discoloration from that leather, for example, and you put something new in there and it just, or the, the fading of the dyes, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't look like it matches. It's obvious that it's new and old. They don't agree. He goes on with a different metaphor. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. What do you do instead? New wine must be put into new bottles. The Matthew account, similar. They put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. Or the Luke account. No man also having drunk old wine straightway desireth new, for he saith, ah, the old is better. Now there's a lot we can get out of this story if we combine accounts. So thank you, Matthew, Mark, and Luke for all remembering this one. It has to do with old and new coming together. Old clothing, new clothing, kind of patchwork quilt, and it's not going to work. Uh, or in this case, old wine, new wine. And for this, you can't think of, of stone pots, like the water to wine at the marriage of Cana. You can't think of some kind of earthen vessel. You need to think of wineskins. So some kind of leather pouch or an animal bladder or something that at one point was a, part of a living animal because living things can, can grow and stretch and expand and contract. And so a wine skin, as long as it's new, still has some stretchiness to it. 
And that's important because as you pour grape juice into it and then let the fermentation process unfold, it's going to swell the wineskin. And if you leave it there long enough, it's eventually going to dry and harden. And so this is now a set volume. It's not going to expand again. So you better not pour out the old wine and then pour new grape juice into it because then the fermentation process will start all over again and start to swell a wineskin that, that can't stretch anymore. And so all that's left is it for it to break, for it to tear. It's like shaking up the soda bottle and you can just feel how much pressure is on the inside. Good thing our plastic can hold it. Well, the wineskin could not. And so now not only does the new wine fall out, drip out of it, but the old wineskin is now worthless as well. And what's interesting to me on the one hand is the Lord seems to want to preserve both both the old and the new. What a shame the old wineskin is no longer functional. And what a shame that all the new wine has spilled out. The way he said it in the Matthew version, both are preserved. Huh. Both the new wine and the new bottle? Well, I suppose also both the old wine and the old bottle. You see, because some people are going to want something new, or at least we're going to need more of this because the old is going to run out. But also, some people prefer the old. The old is better, is what it said in the Luke version, which is interesting. Now, let me tell you a story that I hope will illustrate some of the principles I think the Lord wants us to, to understand. On my mission, uh, I served in a Catholic country, and there were some wonderful Catholic families that we taught. And in my very last area, there was one that was, were so staunchly Catholic that even hinting at the apostasy did not go over well at all. And so a need for a restoration, they, did not, they didn't agree with that. There's no need for anything new. We've got everything we need in the Catholic Church. Unbroken chain of authority from Peter on down to the, the current Pope. Huh, okay, the third discussion, which is where we taught the apostasy, did not go over well. But we decided in their case, maybe we go on and we teach the fourth lesson, the fourth discussion anyway, because the fourth discussion is the plan of salvation and eternal families, and work for the dead, and degrees of glory. It's incredible doctrine that we only know about because of the restoration. And so we went back, and we taught them the fourth discussion, and it, it blew them away. They were like, this is amazing. This is, in fact, they were like, this answers the question of what happens to people who never got baptized. Because in Catholicism, as in the restored gospel, baptism is absolutely essential. And if nobody had the chance, then what happens to them? And this wonderful family didn't really like the answers they had. And so when we explain the spirit world and work for the dead, and in the temple we can perform those saving ordinances, and they can still receive baptism, it, it blew them away. In fact, I remember the wife's statement best of all. She was like beside herself with excitement, and she just said, Me han sacado del aire! which means you have taken me out of the air. It's like I've been floating around in a limbo of my own, confused about how this is going to work. And you have taken me out of the air. You've put my feet on gospel ground. This is how it works. And we're like, yeah, it is. And this wonderful Catholic couple looking at us, American teenagers, going, how in the world did you know this? This solves the problem. It answers the question. And then the wife said the most amazing thing. She's like, why didn't God tell this to the Pope? So everyone would know. 
And in her sweet Catholic conviction, it was, this is true, but we didn't know it, but we should have known it. And God should have told the Pope, since we're the largest Christian church, that's how he would have gotten the word out to everybody. Tell the Pope. And this was the passage that popped into my head. And I said to her and her husband, you know, that's a great point. And God does want everyone to know this. And yes, Catholicism is the largest Christian denomination. But the fact that God didn't tell the Pope and told Joseph Smith instead ought to tell us something about apostasy and the need for a restoration. And I mean no offense by this, but it ought to tell you something. And that's when the verse popped in. I said, you can't put new wine into old bottles. Because the old bottle wasn't flexible enough to receive it. The old bottle, we couldn't pour new truth into it. And so God took a brand new bottle, unused, unpolished, 14-year-old boy on a farm in upstate New York, but began pouring living water into him, began pouring new wine. And the kingdom of God has been swelling ever since. In a kingdom in a church that can expand right along with it. A church of ongoing revelation, of expansive capacity for growth. I wish I could say that they accepted the new wine and the new bottle. They ended up saying something more along the lines, ah, the old is better, even though it can't answer those questions. And that was sad for me. But one of the things I think about now also uh, as I ponder what Jesus said about, I'm not here to destroy the law, I'm here to fulfill it. That I'm not here to destroy Judaism with Christianity. I'm here to fulfill the purposes of Judaism as the Jewish Messiah myself. As we saw, we talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount lesson, in Doctrine and Covenants section 10, in restoring the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Lord isn't trying to destroy the Church of Jesus Christ in among any other saints. He's got a big see church, big umbrella of people trying to live according to the light that they've been given. And we're not trying to snuff out candles or put them under other bushels. No, we're just trying to fan those flames so that they can spread into a light of the world. I wonder about the need to preserve both new and old. And there is value in the old wine but also incredible value in the new. As far as the Lord is concerned, it's all new and everlasting. It's the same stuff he's always been teaching. The covenant he made in pre-mortality and has been renewing with his children ever since. I am grateful for the new bottle. I just don't want to do any damage to old bottles in my zeal to share new wine with people who have grown accustomed to the old. Hold on to every piece of truth you have and simply see if we can add more. Keep your old bottle and come and get the new. As the allegory of the olive tree says, the Lord of the vineyard loves the, his roots just as much as he loves his fruits. He wants to preserve them all. Well, preservation, restoration, might be a good lead-in to the next story. This one we go to the book of Luke for. 
Because what we'll see in two final miracles for this week in Luke chapter 7 are only found here. We don't see them anywhere else. In Luke chapter 7, verse 11 through 13, we meet a woman that deserves the help of God because she won't be able to get it from anyone else. It came to pass the day after that he went, Jesus went, into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people, crowds as always. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, and remember gates, city gates are, is where judgment is passed. It's where the wisdom of the city is supposed to come and congregate so you can receive what you need. Well, the perfect setting for the judge of all Israel to come and decide something here on behalf of someone that would have, wouldn't have much help otherwise. Well, behold, there was a dead man carried out. And he's the first one we meet. We just see this funeral procession and our eye immediately focuses on, on the casket. In this case, on the funeral bier. There was a dead man carried out. The only son of his mother. And she, now we start to turn to the person walking behind. She was a widow. And much people of the city was with her. Now that's good for now at least. Still had people around her, but makes you wonder how long will they stay after the funeral is over. After all, if you're a widow, you don't have much. It's your husband, it's your father, it's your brother, it's your son. Through too much of human history, it's been incredibly difficult to be a woman. But that was especially true in the ancient world. And to be left alone. Again, if you're a daughter, you turn to your father. You turn to your brother. You get married, you turn to your husband. You get older, you turn to your children. There will always be people to provide and protect. But what if you're a widow with an only son and the son is now gone? Does she have any living brothers? Is she old enough that her father has passed on? Again, much people around her, but will they stay to provide her the needed support? The fact that she's a widow whose only son has now died suggests the answer to that is no. Even the words for widows suggest that kind of solitude, that kind of loneliness, that kind of need. From the Hebrew, the word for widow is related to words like forsaken or unable to speak or not spoken for. That's how cut off from things you are. And in the Greek version of it, the word for widow is related to words like bereft, or deficient, or forsaken, or robbed, or left empty. I've got nothing left. This is Ruth and Naomi, but at least they had each other. This woman doesn't have anyone anymore. But she does have Jesus, at least for this moment of judgment on his part as he stands at the gate of the city. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, weep not. Now this is a very different approach than what we'll see later in the famous story of Lazarus when Mary and Martha are weeping at his death and Jesus weeps right along with them. Here, no, no tears on Jesus's eye, in Jesus' eyes and no tears in hers or so he, so he expects. Weep not, I'm here to wipe away every tear from every eye because I have compassion on you. That's the ever-present attribute. 
behind all of these miracles. It's the one that gets mentioned more than any other. Well, because of that compassion, that suffering with, in verse 14, he came and touched the bier. This, whatever it is that these pallbearers are bearing with the body on top. In some ways, this is, this, is this the equivalent of the bed that was lowered through the roof with a man that could not walk? Well, now it's a bed that is being raised by others to bring him to a place of burial. Jesus touches that bier, and they that bear him stood still. They had a sense that something, something was about to happen. And Jesus said, young man, He's addressing this corpse directly. But it was more than just a body to Jesus. There was a soul that Jesus could still communicate with. So he says, young man, I say unto thee, arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. Talk about hard things to say, because if it doesn't work, the body's just going to lie there. Well, it didn't. Sat up and spoke. And what does Jesus do? He delivered him to his mother. Of course he's going to do that first. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen among us. Well, almost. Not, not quite. More than a prophet. So what do they say next? That God hath visited his people. Ah, that's more like it. Remember the, the name that the, the angel said Jesus would be called? Emmanuel? God with us, sure enough, God hath visited his people, a God of life. And you who may be spiritually dead have no reason to bury this man. He's only been physically dead, and that I can reverse in an instant. So now it's no longer the dead burying the dead. Hopefully it's the living carrying the living. Let's at least carry this living son back to his living mother, where he belongs. The story then ends, and this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. Interesting word choice by the King James translators. Most other translations use the word news or report or word. The news spread. Remember Blaze It Abroad? The report of this. Though I do like the choice on King James translators' part of because as it starts to spread, wait, 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 somebody was raised from the dead? Are you kidding? This has got to be just be a rumor. This is just good gossip. There's no way that happened. But when it comes to the, the things that Jesus can do, they're not mere rumors. These are reports. This is news. In fact, it's the best news there is. It's the good news. It's the gospel. In fact, the, you, get, you know what the actual Greek word was used in that? That's translated as rumor or as report or as news? The Greek word, logos, word. But same logos used in John chapter 1, verse 1, that the word was with God and the word was God. And the word was made flesh. The logos, the news is right in front of us. He has come down to lift us up. And his word is a living word, even among the dead. Luke chapter 7 then follows with a section about John the Baptist. Uh, that is found in the Matthew account in chapter 11, if I remember correctly. And so we're going to save that for a later lesson when we focus on Matthew 11. Uh, what he says about John is absolutely amazing. But what the, the story then shifts to in Luke chapter 7 is our final miracle of this week. And it's this woman who comes to anoint the feet of Jesus. 
and wash those feet with her tears. It's such a beautiful scene. We'll see something somewhat similar at the end of the Savior's life when Mary will do, will, will offer a, make a similar offering to Jesus. But this unnamed woman who enters oh, a house where she wasn't invited, but as far as Jesus is concerned, you're always invited, just come on in. And she does. Now, whose house is it? Look at chapter 7 of Luke, verse 36 and 37, and we'll see the story unfold. One of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. I honestly wonder why. I don't know. Is this to be seen of man? I mean, Jesus is really popular. Maybe I'll hitch my wagon to his star. Or is this someone like Nicodemus that I don't know, but I'd like to know more? Uh, and we, I mean, we know that you must be a teacher come from God because nobody can do what you've done unless God is with them. Uh, so come and come and eat with me. They're not at Levi's house this time. They're now at a, at a Pharisee's house. We're going to find out later his name is Simon. Simon in Hebrew means one who hears. And so what has he heard about Jesus? Is it true reports? Are they false rumors? I don't know. Let me see if I can get the word from the word himself. So come over and eat, will you? And Jesus comes. He's probably thinking, oh yeah, sure. I eat with publicans and sinners all the time. Glad you know that, uh, that you're welcome in my presence. And though you're a Pharisee, and like your fellow Pharisees usually claiming, we're perfect at the law. We don't need anything. Our baptism is perfect and was probably even unnecessary in our level of holiness. Oh no, I hope you're humble enough to realize who I know you to be. Well, we're going to see if he is in just a moment. One of the Pharisees desired he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner... When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. Now pause the story. We haven't seen much happen yet, but we know enough about this woman to be concerned. We don't get a name for her, but we know hmm, at least what the rumors are and what the reports have been to affix a title to her. And that title is Sinner. In fact, if she's a woman in the city and she's a sinner, well, you can only imagine what most people would assume those sins to be. Although we don't know for sure. But are we judging her already? Most people would be. This Pharisee certainly is because he's trained for this. He's the guardian of the law. He's above board. He's, he's the one that makes sure that no one destroys even a jot or a tittle. And this woman has been tramping all over the law, left and right. But how will Jesus respond to her? I think we get a hint by one of the most minor JST corrections you could ask for. Because when it says in the King James, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, Joseph just changed the which to a who. A woman in the city who was a sinner. Now that may have just been uh, an improvement of the grammar. Because it, it does deserve a who rather than a which. And there's a lot of those kind of minor changes throughout the JST. But in her case, I'm grateful for this grammatical correction. Because I think too often, especially if we deem someone sinful, then we just objectify them in a negative way. And we reduce them down to their sin. Which is a thing. So they that might as well be a thing too. And so a thing deserves a witch. It's a person. 
that merits a who. And in this gentle, this small correction, what, if, what are we doing? We're restoring some humanity to this woman who has been through a lot of things, who is defined truly or falsely by certain actions that she's committed in the past. But she's still a person nonetheless. And great is the worth of souls in the sight of God. Jesus is about to show that. But she shows it first. And in verse 38, she stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. We learned in the previous verse that that's what she had brought with her in that alabaster box. But if it's ointment meant for anointing, what does she know? Anointing oil is something you usually give to kings and priests. Oh yes, Jesus is both. Anointed one in Hebrew is Messiah. Anointed one in Greek is Christ. Does she know who he is? In some ways, this is a female equivalent of the wise men who bring gold because they know he's a king and frankincense because they know he's divine and myrrh because they know he will someday be a sacrifice. King and God and sacrifice, he's all. But here, Messiah, Christ, anointed one, king of kings, lord of lords, this is my high priest of good things to come. And since he's not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of my infirmity, then I will boldly come to the throne of grace. I'll barge into someone else's house. In fact, the house of someone that is synonymous with judgment and condemnation. Forget the gates of the city. I'm going to the city gates myself. I'm going to the home of a Pharisee that is holiness personified, a holier than thou anyway. And yes, he will look down his nose at me and be disgusted by what I am. By what he already assumes me to be and has reduced me to that and frozen me in that mold as a sinner. This is the leper. I'll brave the multitude and come to Christ. This is the woman with the issue of blood. He's my only hope. And this woman knows the same. I will come. I'll come in up behind him. Houses were more open in that time period. And eating wasn't at a dinner table with uh, sitting on a chair with your feet beneath you. No, it was reclining and feet out away from the table so you could lean on one arm and eat, feed yourself with the other hand. So she has easy access to the feet of Jesus. And she comes and washes them with her tears, wipes them with her hair, kisses those now cleansed feet, anoints them with this precious ointment that she has brought. I wonder how long this process would take. We'll see in just a moment what is going on in Simon's mind this whole time. But I wonder what's going on in Jesus's. Because he allows it to happen. And however long it takes, he just sits there in silence for the duration of this humble cleansing of his feet. As always, 
master of the situation, unperturbed, undisturbed by it all, and just lets her do what she came to do. No protesting, like, oh, no, you shouldn't do this. It's, if this is what you feel you need to do, if this is you coming with your broken heart and contrite spirit, then I'll let you pour out your broken heart. And I'll do it in silence. Elder Maxwell once told the story of just wanting so desperately to barge into the middle of someone's confession to reassure them that it was going to be okay and it was all right and I'm glad that you came. Can you picture a compassionate heart wanting to do that? But he just felt the Spirit rein him in, hold him back, bind his tongue, so that this woman could have the full measure of her own experience with the Spirit of God. The way Elder Maxwell phrased it after the fact, he said, can we remain silent when silence is eloquence? Oh, and this was an eloquent silence on the part of Jesus. As she is speaking volumes about repentance, and about humility, about forsaking sin, about godly sorrow. And Jesus lets her teach it all without a word. In verse 39, the words are taking place within Simon's heart. And when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself. That seems to keep on happening. Saying, this man... If, here's another one of our ifs for this week, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she uh, is a sinner. I, 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 I'm, I feel contaminated just having her under my roof. Maybe we need to break this roof down too and replace it with something cleaner. But this, we've got to fumigate first. We've got to get this woman out of here, back into the city where she belongs. Ah. <sighs> But he doesn't say anything. He's just, he probably has this look of disgust and horror on his face. And that's speaking volumes too. Now, I need to say something here that I, I'll put it this way. It's the most glorious typo I've ever seen in scripture. And it's no longer present. It's sad that the new edition of the scriptures and the online version as well caught the mistake and corrected it. But I prefer my old one. My old Bible still preserves the old mistake, the old typo. And it's my favorite one because it's so well placed. Almost as if some enterprising typesetter, quote unquote, accidentally made the error. Because in the old version of Luke chapter 7, verse 39, the word sinner, she is a sinner, actually had three N's instead of the usual two. <laughs> Seriously, if you have old scriptures, go back and look. And I, I die laughing every time I see it because it's so perfect for what a Pharisee might have been thinking inside. Almost stuttering over the sinfulness of this woman. Like, this woman is so disgusting. I can't believe she's in my house contaminating everything she's touching. And he's letting her touch him? Ah, does he not know? Surely he couldn't. He can't be a prophet. Otherwise, he would know that this woman is a... Ah, I can't even say it. She's a... She's a sin... 
I mean, the worst I've ever been is a two-end sinner. This Pharisee probably thinks he's a one-end sinner. Probably doesn't even have any ends to, to, to spell out the word sin. Oh no, I'm better than that. But her? A full-fledged three-end sinner. Does it get any worse than that? Can you see why I'm disappointed that we've caught the mistake and fixed it? That's not how the Simon the Pharisee would feel. Well, how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 40 and watch compassion and mercy unfold. And Jesus answering, which is ironic since this Pharisee hasn't actually said anything out loud. Oh, I know you got a question on your mind, if I'm really a prophet, if you know how many ends there are in this woman's sinfulness. So let me answer your unspoken question. He said unto him, Simon, interesting, that's the first time we learn his name. Jesus knows it. He's willing to call him by name. He sees the humanity here, the identity. Don't reduce you down to some objectified thing. You're not a witch. You're a who. So Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And Simon responds, Master, say on. Mm, Master, do you see me as that? Let's see. Here's my story. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Now, this is going to be similar to another parable Jesus will teach later, although the numbers here are more manageable. 500 pence, a pence is what you get if you're a day laborer for a day's work. A day's work, wage for a day's work, well, that day's wage is a penny. So 500 pence, we're talking like two years salary for an agricultural laborer. 50, well, there you got two months, give or take. Either way, though, they owe this creditor money. And the common denominator, they have nothing to pay. One other common denominator, the creditor forgives them both. He frankly forgives them, in fact. It's, it's okay. I will tear up the IOU, and neither one of you owes me a thing. But then the Lord's question. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Ah, now we're back to this idea of comparison. No wonder we're comparing the 500 pence debt to the 50 pence debt. So what do you think? Well, Simon answers, and answers wisely. He said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave the most... And Jesus says to him, thou hast rightly judged. Hmm, good job. But the interesting thing about this is what, what has not yet been figured out by Simon. And what I think the Lord really wants to, to understand, not only from the story he tells, but from the story that he's living right then with this woman. You see, what you need to understand about both, yes, there's, there's comparison. Yes, there's a difference. And there's a difference in how much love is being given and a difference in terms of how much debt is being forgiven. But what, there need, what we need no comparison of is the fact that both are in debt and neither can pay and both are forgiven. Which makes the difference between these two debtors a difference in degree, not a difference in kind. If it was a difference in kind, it would be one person owed however many pence and the other didn't owe anything. And the creditor comes in and says, hey, you don't owe me anything. And, and hey, you don't either, obviously. You don't owe me any more. 
you've never owed me to begin with. And who's going to love the creditor more? Well, duh, the one that was forgiven, because this guy doesn't even know the creditor. He's never needed the creditor's help. That would be difference in kind. Now, I think what the Lord is hinting at is, hey, Simon, you and this woman, how different are you, really? You, in your pharisaical obedience, even if it's successful, I mean, if we're going to give you the benefit of the doubt and you wanted me to come, maybe there's some belief there. Wonderful. Uh, maybe you are holier than most. But are you only different from this woman in degree? Or are you really different from her in kind? Because if you've never owed anything, if you've never had... I mean, it's like those Pharisees we saw in the JST earlier. We've never broken the law. What are you talking about? Seriously? Man, are you that blind or that hypocritical that you've worn the mask long enough that you think that's actually what you look like underneath? No, go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Reclimb the mountain. There's some more of you. There's some more lessons to learn. But in this case, if you know that your degree of sinfulness still makes you a sinner? Maybe yours is only one N, and maybe hers is three. But the title sinner still applies. And guess what the sad reality of sin is? It disqualifies you automatically from being able to pay your own debt. Can't do it. Only a sinless sacrifice would suffice. So you can't pay these off. So let's say you're the 50 and she's the 500. Fine. Both of you are in need of some degree of forgiveness. And the fact that you need any forgiveness puts you in the same ship. And it's a sinking one. We're in the same boat and there's holes all over. Her side might be going down faster than yours, but give it time. Yours will sink as well. Unless I come and frankly forgive both of you. Which I'm willing to do. There's actually a fascinating verse in James chapter 2. I'm excited to get to the, the second half of the New Testament. It's glorious. But in James chapter 2 verse 10, it's a haunting verse. He says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. Now that, that should scare every Pharisee to death, both ancient or modern. Anyone who thinks, I'm doing well. I'm not as bad as anybody else. There's fewer ends in my sins than in theirs. Doesn't matter. If you've kept the whole law, or so you think, and yet have offended in one little point, one jot, one tittle, then you're guilty of all. This is so stark. I actually had an institute student once really push back and go, that's totally unfair. I tell a little white lie and now I'm guilty of adultery? That does not seem right. I'm like, well, don't put it in those terms. It doesn't turn you into an adulterer, but it does turn you into a sinner. And, that, and then the difference between a white liar and a, and a full-on adulterer is only a difference in degree, not a difference in kind. And because of that difference of kind, you're no longer the kind of person that can be saved by pure obedience to law. Your only hope now is the atonement of Jesus Christ. There's two paths back home. One is perfect obedience. That's the one Jesus took. He wasn't saved by his own atonement. That's circular reasoning. That's pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't do that. 
Jesus returned to God on this rickety old bridge where every single step has to be perfect or you'll fall through. Or let's change the metaphor from bridges to a chain that hangs from above that allows you to swing across the chasm between fallen humanity and perfect divinity. Well, if it's a chain, a chain is made up of links. And I love this analogy for James' insight. Because to break the chain, did you have to break every single link? No. Some people break more links than others. They break more commandments than other people do. They have more ends in their sinfulness. But even if you only broke a single one, if you offended in one point, and that minor link is broken, what happened to your chain? It no longer works, even if every other link remains intact. Ah, so I will not be able to come back to God on the basis of perfect obedience. Because I'm lumped in with the sinners. That's all we've got. It's going to take Jesus to come back. Not with a blowtorch. Sometimes I worry that's what, worry that's what we think. Jesus, can you come back and, and bring the welding mask and the blowtorch? Because I, I only have one link, but if you can redo this one, then I'm sure I'll get across better this time. No, that ship has sailed. Actually, that ship has sunk. There's no hope. And Jesus comes back on his chain. And rather than reforging ours, he tries to forge a covenant relationship with us to say, hold on to me and I'll bring you back to God on the basis of my perfect work and my perfect mercy. Are we willing to accept it? Are you, Simon? Or do you not think you need it? In some ways, I think Jesus' whole question is really interesting of who's going to love him more. Because that does suggest there's some kind of comparison. And since he judged rightly, the one who had the more to be forgiven ends up loving the, the creditor more than the other. Which I think, I worry, might have some people wondering then, oh, so should I sin more so I have more to be forgiven? So I end up loving more God more as a result? Now this is where Paul comes in and says things like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Should sin abound so that grace may more fully abound? And what's his own answer to that question? God forbid. L literally, he forbids that. Do not, you don't have to heap up the debt just to feel more grateful for the, for, the credit, for the creditor that is forgiving you. You don't have to dig yourself deeper into the hole to be grateful for the rope that is being extended because you're already in the hole and there's no way to get out. I've talked about this before. Do not deepen the pit. Raise the pedestal and know Jesus for who he really is and how, how much we fall short of him, even if we don't fall far. He just rises that far above us that once we recognize that, it's a safer way to be humble and recognize our need. Because I'm not like him yet. It may only be jots and tittles that I'm breaking, but he's the whole word of God. Volumes of virtue that I just want to spend a lifetime reading. Man, I've got some repenting to do. And he has a lot to forgive. Maybe not as many sins of commission as others, but so many sins of omission where I'm tragically falling short. At the end of the day, we all need to love the Lord. 
with all our heart, might, mind, and strength. All we've got, because he's our only hope. And we will never pay back God, because we have nothing with which to pay. Frank forgiveness is our only hope. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus is allowing for some kind of comparison there. He's hoping that Simon will see, do you know how sinful this woman is? You seem to. Then do you know how loving she is? Because she recognizes her sinfulness? That's what he gets at in verse 44 to 46. But notice, I wish we could watch this play out. Because you're going to have to be really, really careful with your stage cues if you're the director here. And where eyes are going and where heads are turning and who's looking at who, but lines of sight versus lines of speech. Pay close attention. Verse 44. He turned to the woman and said unto Simon. So you see the difference? Jesus' eyes turned to this woman behind him, but he's still speaking to Simon, even though he's not looking at him. He's looking at her. And he says to Simon, kind of over his shoulder, behind his back, Seest thou this woman? Because here's the thing. I do. I'm seeing her. I'm looking at her right now, even though I'm not speaking to her. My mouth is going your way, but my eyes are going hers. How about your eyes, Simon? Who are you looking at? Are you looking at yourself and how much better than she is you happen to be? Are you looking at me and disgusted by the thought that this man has no clue who he is or who's touching him? Or are you looking at her in absolute horror and disgust, but not seeing her for who she really is? Who, not which. What, what do you see? What do you see in other people? Do you see the worth of souls? Can you see past rough exteriors? To the humble heart within. What do you see, Simon? Your name means to hear, but do you see? Then Jesus explains, and he's still looking at her with love, speaking to him with judgment. And he says, I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou, he's still talking over his shoulder, thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman that I'm looking at eye to eye, this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman, this incredible woman, hath anointed my feet with ointment. You want to talk about comparison, Simon? Fine. Comparing your so-called white wool with her scarlet sin. Oh, there's more tinges of pink than you realize in you. And only spotless white will do. But let's go ahead with this comparison. And let's compare not what you've done compared to what she's done. Let's compare what you haven't done with what she has done. Well, here's a little chart for you. In the middle, let's portray normal hospitality. What uh, you would expect if you enter someone, else, someone else's home 
for a meal. Normal hospitality, you would expect that they would, they would at least provide some water for you to wash your feet. If they're well enough off, there would be a servant there to do that foot washing. Are we starting to get some foreshadowing to the Last Supper, by the way? Oh, okay, so washing the feet. Simon, what did you offer? None of that. Talk about a sin of omission. So forget her sins of commission. Let's talk about an act of commission that's a righteous one. Not only did she provide water for my feet, it was better than water. It was her own tears. Tears of humble contrition. Have you ever shed any like that, Simon? Now, if the, water, if the feet are now clean, but they're wet, we need something to dry them. And so normal hospitality would offer a towel to dry my feet. You didn't give me even that. Well, I guess you didn't, I didn't need one since my feet were still not wet and not clean by the way. This woman, not a towel, it was her own hair. She took the dirt that was upon me and took it upon herself. Again, preview of coming attractions. Normal hospitality, well, kiss on the cheek, just a little abrazo, as they say in Spanish, something to welcoming me, to welcome me. You didn't even give me that. She, on the other hand, Probably not feeling worthy to give a kiss on the cheek, but a, to kiss my feet? Wow, there's humility. Oil on my head. Just a sign of kindness to offer me that gift as, well, as way of welcome. You didn't give me any of that either. But she, she brought her alabaster box and gave me the ointment that again, probably too humble to approach my head, but anointed my feet. In a way, Simon, what we've seen, to borrow the degrees of glory, normal hospitality would be terrestrial glory. It's simply what's expected. You talk about a telestial host. You gave me nothing. Which makes this woman, by way of comparison, a celestial hostess that walked an extra mile that gave cloak as well as coat, that turned other cheeks and gave more than was ever expected. And she did it out of love. Where does that leave you, Simon? You who are guarding the law, but if the entire law hangs on love of God, are you keeping it after all? In verse 47, Jesus continues, Wherefore I say unto thee, and his eyes are still on her, but he's not talking to her, he's talking to Simon. So who's the thee? Simon is. That's so fascinating. I say unto you, Simon, over my, behind my back, over my shoulder, her sins, and wouldn't it be interesting for him to be looking, locked eye to eye with this woman, but referring to her in the third person, her sins, which are many? Are they many? Perhaps. I'm not counting letters here. I know she's a sinner. I know you are too. Everyone I've ever met is. When you say I have, I have meals with publicans and sinners, I don't always have them with publicans, but I always have them with sinners. That's all there are out there. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. 
But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Now back to the irony of comparison. (laughs) When he keeps making differences in degree, when in reality what matters is differences in kind, and there aren't any except with his kind, his perfect kind. So when he says those that have little forgiven, I picture him kind of winking there, knowing there's no such thing as little forgiveness. For even the least offense, I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. And what does it take to even purge the slightest spot? The blood of the Lamb. A full, infinite, and eternal sacrifice. Jesus would not have had to suffer less if we had sinned less. So there's no such thing as little forgiveness. Sadly, there is such a thing as little love. And sometimes those who believe in a little forgiveness are guilty of a little love. Because they don't recognize that everything is owed the Savior. And that we have nothing to pay. This woman knows it. She gets it. She understands it. She loves the Lord. It's actually interesting because in the story, there's one twist here. Because in the story, which came first, forgiveness or love? In the story of these creditors, or these debtors, I should say, the one who got the most forgiven ended up loving most. And so forgiveness preceded love. You forgive me? Oh, yeah, I'm going to love you. But think about it. In the living story of what Jesus was experiencing right there with Simon and with his woman, which came first? Jesus hadn't forgiven her in some other unmentioned story. And then she comes in to say thank you. No, she, there's no words for her. She has nothing to say. She's so devastated by the realization of her own sinfulness. These mounting ends that keep piling up that she comes in and just begins. And Jesus doesn't say a word. There's no, no words are, are, there's no words spoken between them. But everything she did was an act of incredible love. Humility, yes. Self-sacrifice, yes. But love, most of all. And what's, what comes as a result? Forgiveness. Because she loved much. There's a broken heart and a contrite spirit. There's godly sorrow. There's faith preceding the miracle. And love preceding the forgiveness. That's beautiful. I hope that we can be more like her and just love. This is, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. I don't know if you will, but I know that you can, and I love you for it, come what may. This woman, absolutely one of my heroines in all of scripture, And thankfully, by the end, the conversation does turn to her. The Savior's eyes have been on her this whole time as he's had this conversation behind his his back. But then in verse 48 through 50, and this is where our lesson ends, he said unto her, his, his eyes didn't have to move, his head didn't have to turn, but now the speech line goes from Simon to this woman. He says to her, Thy sins are forgiven. 
He'd already said that in the previous verse. Her sins are forgiven. But this time, and he doesn't add, he doesn't repeat the word, which are many. Doesn't even bring it up. Doesn't matter. They're gone. In fact, they were gone the moment I said they are forgiven. So I'm not going to bring those up again. But in case you worry, in case this conversation was just between me and Simon, your judge. No, I'm your judge. And I'm passing a judgment of not guilty. Thy sins are forgiven. By the mouth of two or three witnesses. I've just given them twice. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? We're back to the, the broken roof. We're back to the Pharisees. Oh, I guess they're more alike than we realize. Uh, and there they are judging Christ's judgment, saying, You can't do this. You're not God. Oh, really? Who is this that forgiveth sins? Answer your question with the answer you think. Because the Son of God is among you. And then again, he said to the woman, one last fitting phrase, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. A third time, a third round of reassurance. It's okay. You loved much. And charity covereth a multitude of sins. You had faith, great faith, and faith precedes this miracle. In fact, in a humble way, take some of the credit. Jesus is so humble in giving it and sharing it with others. And so often it's not just a matter of, oh yeah, it's my virtue that did it. No, it's your faith that called upon my virtue. It's your faith that preceded my miracle. And so thy faith hath saved thee. And as a result, though you came in fear, you can go in peace. You're forgiven. I don't think it's coincidental that in amidst so many miracles of physical healing, what we've seen in our crescendo today is a grand finale in a miracle of spiritual healing. Again, take your pick. Do you want take up thy bed and walk, or do you want be of good cheer? Thy sins are forgiven thee. The climax of what we've studied so far is that second, not the first. You're healed. You're cleansed. You're forgiven. That's the atonement of Jesus Christ, and it's that that allows us to truly go in peace, leaving our past behind us. So to remind ourselves, if each of these people were able to come and personify the miracle that Jesus had given them to reassure us that we can receive similar miracles, what would they say? Ask the leper. And I think the leper would say to us, if you are an outcast, then go in peace. Because the Lord will bring you in and make you whole. If you're the centurion with this beloved servant, if you're afraid of losing someone you love, go in peace because the Lord can restore them to you. If you are Peter's mother-in-law, then if you're suffering, go in peace because the Lord will give you strength 
strength that you can then use to minister to others. Those disciples on the ship, if you're tempest-tossed, go in peace, and the Lord will calm your stormy sea. To the man with the legion of devils, if you're battling demons within, then go in peace, because the Lord can break your chains. To the man with the palsy lowered through the roof, if you worry that you'll never be able to walk a straight and narrow path, then go in peace, because the Lord will not only lift you, He'll lead you. To the son of the widow of Nain, if you are spiritually dead, go in peace, because the Lord can raise you to a newness of life. That's what He came to do. To the woman who washed the Savior's feet, if you're unworthy, then go in peace because the Lord can make you clean. And that cleanliness will come because of your faith and because of your love. I pray that we can love much because we have been forgiven much and we have been healed much and we have been taught much and we've been blessed much. I'm grateful for him. I testify of Jesus Christ. I have seen his healing hand in my life and the lives of those I love. I've seen his, I have felt his forgiveness flow into me. And as a result, I can not only testify, blaze abroad, declare throughout all Decapolis, not only what the Lord does, but what he's like that makes him want to do it. I can testify of a compassionate Christ, who wants to say to every one of us, be of good cheer, go in peace, I can make you whole.